Finley Jacobson. I don't understand that one. Uh, and with a Monster Calls tagline, Kelly Wand. It's like the BFG, only the F stands for photosynthesis. <laughs> oh, that one took me a minute, because F photosynthesis doesn't start with F. It's a lot going on in that one. Thing is, what's that Jacob thing? Who, who is that, and why did you... What, what's that from? Uh, it's a character in Olympus Has Fallen. Wow. Okay. I'm sure everyone but me knew that. That was the kid's name. (laughs) The actor's name. Connor's actor's name? Yep. Interesting. Dingus already invoking child actors. We'll get into more of that in a moment. (laughs) Kelly Wand, are there additional uh, Monster Calls taglines? It's like Avatar, but with Sigourney Weaver in a tree. I don't know. Do you, do you have one that tops that, or are you just going to stop there? It's like if Tony Robbins was an Ent. <laughs> it's the best feel-good movie about dying moms since Dr. Detroit. Finally, a movie where Felicity Jones dies after making an inspiring speech about blowing up stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he totally saved that one for us, Dingus. He wow. knew that he, could, he had a showstopper there. <laughs> wow, Kelly Wand. <laughs> well, that might spoil that might spoil a monster call. So let's back up from the spoilers a moment. You listeners, if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want it spoiled, pretend you didn't hear any of that. And Dingus, <laughs> tell them a little about the movie without spoiling anything. I don't know if I can do anything now. So it's a really pretty stellar. Kelly. Wow. Really? Yeah. That Come on. Come on. Ah. You're kicking off the new year pretty well. I like that. All right, this week, we, okay. this week we saw Monster Calls, a 2016 international dark fantasy drama movie that is trying to fulfill Kelly Wan's question, what movie needs a prequel? It was directed by J.A. Bayona, written by Patrick Ness, Ugh. based upon the novel by Patrick Ness, Ugh. which is based upon an original idea by Siobhan Dowd. That's not how you pronounce Seoban. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, if we if we let the seals live, then uh, they'll eat all our picnics. <laughs> I love that it's based upon an original idea by. Uh, how I far see, are we going to go down this rabbit hole? Well, I read that sort of scribble by. Yeah, I read that sort of thing, Dingus, and I think there's probably a lawsuit involved here, and someone had to have. Someone had to have her name involved in this. Or, I don't know, maybe she's a friend of his. Who knows? I invented giants. <laughs> I sat once on an airplane next to a woman who explained to me that she was in the middle of a lawsuit against Sylvester Stallone because he stole the idea for cliffhangers from her. And I was like, yeah, okay, okay whatever. But she was ex- holding forth about this, and I got off the plane. And then months later, read that actually Sylvester Stallone had to settle a suit for with with some brother and sister who sued him for stealing the idea uh, for cliffhangers. 
Uh, oh. First off, it's I can't believe that's what you think that movie's called. And secondly, <laughs> there's only one cliffhanger. He there's said only cliffhangers. One. All right. Cliffhanger sounds like, like a comedy about. It sounds like a sex comedy, like an '80s high school movie about. Right, and, and Oscar Isaac's Oscar Isaac's is in it. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that's Tom's thing. I forgot. He makes plurals. He loves that out of stuff. That's a good point. Uh, but yeah, so she won. That's good. Which part was she? Was did he rip off? The, I don't know, like, but she was. She was very much uh, like a a snowboarder, extreme sports kind of chick. Um, so I'm guessing that her and her brother just decided, hey, let's do a movie about being up in the mountains where it's snowy. Uh, and at some point, they maybe tried to sell the script, and they didn't sell it. And then somewhere down the line, a company to whom they tried to sell the script, namely Sylvester Stallone's, produced it. So they thought, hey, wait a minute. And they were able to demonstrate in court similarities between their script. I mean, I don't know. That's normally how that sort of thing goes. She was the Buckwald. I don't understand that reference. He was it's coming to America, Joe, because they he sued them. Never mind. Yeah, we had a Doctor Detroit and a coming in America reference so far tonight, Kelly. That's good. It, it's fun. Also, what I don't know. <laughs> Chuck Kelly really taking us back. All right, so uh, Dingus, what then is this movie rated? Oh, I'm sorry. Did we, so we credited the writers. Did we have more there? Right. And I didn't even think about that. I, I, when I didn't think about a lawsuit, I just th- I just had this imagination of like a couple of people sitting around talking over coffee, and you know Siobhan Dowd talking about this idea to Patrick Ness, and then him writing a book about it, and then her getting credit, and all of it being amicable. Yeah, no idea that it might be a legal thing, but you're probably totally right. Although the fact that it's based on a novel, maybe he did like sort of credit her in the novel and he wanted it to be on the screenplay. Because the fact that he wrote the novel and the screenplay uh, imply well, I, I don't know, that might have... We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit because I think that's one of the issues that this movie might want to look at. Should you have novelists adapting their own novels to screenplays? Maybe Only not. John. I think she... I think she, she's a professor or a teacher or something like that. I, I don't think she's professional screenwriter or anything only the 50 shades novelist because she i think her stuff translates well to did she world. adapt that book herself like you guys saw that. uh she was a pain in the ass on the set and the director quit because she was really demanding I guess. right but she didn't do the, the screenplay adaptation i take it i think she did she did okay interesting because i I'm, I'm gonna go out and i'm gonna say that's never a good idea hmm <laughs> About the original novel or what you said? No, just about the chick who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, having her adapted. No, <laughs> no I, about, I just think it takes – it's a very different type of writing, a novel and a screenplay. And I think one of the issues with this movie uh, might be related to that, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah, so the thing is, very, is, yeah. is this a okay, movie – Anyway, so let me just say yeah. that uh, this movie stars Louis McDougall, hmm. Toby Kebbell, hmm. Felicity Jones – uh, Sigourney Weaver ooh, and yeah. Liam Neeson as the grandpa. <laughs> um, A Monster Calls is rated PG-13 for thematic content and some scary images. Uh-huh. Oh, nobody, nobody dropped an F-bomb, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm thinking back. Yeah, I didn't get a language disclaimer. The tree did, I thought, a few times, but maybe I just misremember. 
Okay, well, is there anything else that should be in that little uh, parental guidance suggestion box? I would say some childhood depictions of an apothecary's job stress and <laughs> thematic elements. But the thematic imagery, I thought, was fine. But the thematic elements way over the top for a 13-year-old. Uh, a Monster Calls is at 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot, of, a lot of the wow. reviews are, are positive. Metacritic, uh, the average rating from various reviews, it's at 76. Uh, it did not do well commercially, though. Uh, it opened middling wide in 1,500 theaters. Didn't even hit the top ten. Barely made $2 million. Uh, so big disappointment for Focus Features commercially. Um, it's not... On, if you go to CinemaScore to find out what idiots think of it, it's actually not listed in the CinemaScore ratings. However, uh, a studio spokesman in the box office mojo write-up, the, the guy, Ben Brevett, who writes the synopses there, he quotes a studio spokesman for, from Focus who says that A Monster Calls got an A from CinemaScore. So for whatever reason, apparently CinemaScore did track this, but it's not on their website. But what we now know from that is that idiots pretty much like this movie. According to people who made the movie. Like, we don't know. How is he? He doesn't have any credibility. He's going to say A anyway. I don't know that they can lie about that data specifically. They can lie about the idiots, or they can't lie about idiot scores. Cinema score is a it's a business. I don't think a studio spokesman is going to come out and say we got ninety eight on Rotten Tomatoes, for instance. When he's they not going to say it's a B, he's to say it's an A, and A could be anything. You, you think that he's lying and that it actually got a lower rating on Cinema Score? I'm just saying I don't trust this source. It just sounds a little like a cheering section during a press conference. You really think that idiots don't like A Monster Calls? Mm, I just prefer to hear that from the idiots. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what it may be is that they simply just did the tracking, the CinemaScore tracking for internal use. Like it might not be published on the website and uh, – I, I, don't, I, didn't, I wasn't aware that that happened, but in this uh, case, at any rate, a CinemaScore rating was cited, but it's not available on their website at this point in time. So, Kelly Wand, I would like you now to give us a monster collapsus. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to enjoy some milk and cookies while you do that, if that's okay. Sure. All right. But you have to – okay, so as long as I can hear you eating, because right. I know that if I say something funny, you'll know. I'll know. I won't know. Monster Colopsis, is that what you said? Right. Yep. A monster Colopsis. A goth kid named Timmy has a nightmare about a church he doesn't like getting damaged. He goes outside, farts with relief, and goes, I sure hope that was the dumbest dream I'll ever have. Suddenly, a giant tree that talks like the gray stomps over to him and goes, I'm going to tell you three stories, then you have to tell me one. Wow, your niece is awesome. <laughs> you're, a little, well, you're a little light on the accent, but you got the voice down. I can't wait to hear your Aslan. He's not in this, is he? I can't remember. <laughs> it's been days. Yeah. The tree wanders off, tripping over barns and missile silos and cursing. Timmy looks at us and goes, Did my life get any lamer? He wakes up screaming to find Sigourney Weaver's face right in front of him. <laughs> She's all, Hello, love, I'm your granny in this. I'm British. 
Now, where's me tea? Also, don't touch anything while you make it for me, especially the kettle tea cup of tea. Hate you, by the way. She tousles his face and wanders off, tripping over his alien toys. <laughs> Timmy wakes up screaming to find himself by his dying mom's bedside. She coughs blood on his face, then goes, Timmy, I'm afraid me wounds from death stop blowing up me planet. I was doing me mission on a too severe. Jeez, really? These are really hurt. <laughs> me knee here and me wrists I may only live another 84 months so from now on you have to live with grandma's clock Timmy wakes up screaming to find himself cornered in an alley by a bully and his two sidekicks the bully's all what's the matter Timmy What's with you not staring at me in class as much since your mom started dying? That's downright rude. <laughs> the bully with dumb teeth saw. Ah, you're going through some shit. <laughs> <laughs> They're really sensitive into it, like uh, empathetic bullies. Kids yeah. can be cruel, but kind. <laughs> the in bully the right saw. The main bully. Wait, sidekick's a bully? Sidekick's a bully. The bully's all. And you know what we do to non-staring enthusiasts. He starts pulling out Timmy's tongue while Timmy scowls with mild irritation. <laughs> he somehow gets out of this and goes home to find his ape-like dad sprawled on his porch. <laughs> the dad's all. Yeah, I locked myself out again. He takes Timmy to a merry-go-round in a tunnel of love. The Ferris wheel wins. That night, Timmy drops a pen that turns into an earthquake. He wakes up screaming. <laughs> he wakes up screaming to find the tree sitting by his bed, drumming his tree branch fingers with annoyance. <laughs> the tree's all, Jesus, thought you'd never wake up. Now it's time for story number one. Once upon a time, there was a king, his three sons, a queen, a witch, his orphan grandson, the orphan's mom, obviously, but she's not relevant, a dragon, <laughs> some giants, a couple snails, and uh, this one girl the grandson was into. <laughs> not that you have a love interest in this. <laughs> All of them died except the orphan, because the witch stabbed the girl while he was asleep by some dumbass tree. <laughs> Some finger paints beautifully depict Timmy's yawn. The trees all. So he blew up the witch and lived happily ever after. The finger paints beautifully depict the stabbing. Timmy's all. Worst story ever. <laughs> the trees all. I'm not even finished yet. It turns out that the orphan stabbed the girl, and everyone else died of natural causes, so he murdered the witch for nothing. <laughs> Timmy's all. Yeah, still worst story ever. The tree walks off waving. I'll be back with a couple more like that, probably in opportune moments. <laughs> Although, believe it or not, that one's the most fleshed out of the three. How's yours coming? He disappears without waiting for an answer. <laughs> to celebrate his mom dying, Timmy and Felicity watch TV together. After a bit, Timmy's all, how come King Kong doesn't like brunettes? He's a brunette. 
<laughs> his mom's off. This is beneath the plan of the eggs, you idiot. To cheer himself up at school, Timmy stares at a bully in class till the teacher finally sighs exasperatedly and goes, Steerforth, would you please take Timmy out back and beat him already? It's really throwing off me transcription of the answers from the back of this book. The bully's all. But I was enjoying listening to you draw numbers and learning what algebra is. Well, you should have thought of that when Timmy's embryo developed eyes in the womb. Out. Timmy gets beaten up, walks home slowly, opens the front door, goes into the bathroom, pees, brushes his teeth, gets in bed, lies down, shuts his eyes, and wakes up screaming to find Sigourney Weaver walking him into a room filled with priceless antiques. She's all, well, here we are in my priceless antique room, love. <laughs> Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> Someday all this will be yours, so be careful in here. I'm still British. That's me accent. All these articles were painstakingly built in 1914. 1913 items, 1915 ones. Oh, and the atomic clock? Check this shit, bitch. As people with me accents say, voici. She gestures to a <laughs> grandfather clock Timmy's already standing in front of. Sigourney's all. This baby keeps time down to the second. The clock pompously chimes six times. Timmy's all, it's 224. Sigourney's all, yeah, it was constructed before the existence of leap year, so it runs a few hours slow. Anyway, I got to go somewhere. You stand here till I get back, and don't touch anything. <laughs> she walks off and wakes up screaming. Timmy looks around at all the expensive heirlooms and goes, hmm, maybe I can use these moments of solitude to constructively plan my future or meditate on the nature of mortality. Suddenly the tree shows up, smashing through a wall of antiques and getting his foot stuck in one. He's all, uh, yeah, <clears throat> so I workshop story two, uh, thought you might want to touch base. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, there was an apothecary and a Protestant minister, both named Steve. <laughs> it's all, what's a workshop? Uh, the minister told everyone in town that the apothecary's drugs were less potent than the type he usually enjoyed. So everyone shut their doors in the apothecary's face. Back then, guys who made potions were mostly door-to-door. <laughs> anyway, one day the witch from the first story cursed the minister so his kids and wife were dying. He went to the apothecary and asked him if he had any cures for death or preferably poison for witches. The apothecary was all, sorry, I only sell potions to customers of unwavering conviction. So the minister's family died. What happened to the minister and the apothecary after that's irrelevant. The end. <laughs> wow, so I'm the witch. I wasn't listening, actually. The tree tousles the Staffordshires fondly, shattering them. You're growing up less fast than I was hoping. Now do what the apothecary did and destroy the minister's house, like this. He destroys all of Sigourney Weaver's possessions, sticks a sledgehammer in the kid's hand, and capers off giggling while Sigourney Weaver comes home and enters the room, staring around at all the wreckage. The only thing left intact is a glass case of stuffed frogs. She's all, I hate this glass, and knocks it over, then storms out. I look over at Cameron from Ferris Bueller sitting beside me and go, <laughs> Ferris was your tree, huh? <laughs> Let's make it for kids. <laughs> <laughs>
To celebrate waking up screaming, the next day, Timmy and his dad pick up some of the stuff that he broke and put it into boxes so they can dump it all into Grandma's bed while she's asleep on it for her to figure out. Timmy's all, I suppose you're going to punish me. The dad's all, for what? It's tree's fault. Let his dad ask for what? Speaking of which, since things are going so well with you here lately, we've decided you should just keep living with Grandma for the rest of your life. She still has a couple rooms with unbroken stuff left in them that she wants to get rid of. Timmy sighs miserably. Great. Now he's in the school cafeteria eating lunch. The dumbest meal of the day. The bullies walk up to him, sneering. Steer forth the bullies all. Well, well, if it isn't Timmy. Guess what? From now on, I'm not going to beat you up anymore. And I hope your mom feels better. He makes Timmy shake his hand while all the bullies point and laugh, then also shake hands and point and laugh at each other. To celebrate parts of this, the bully starts to walk away across the giant cathedral-sized cafeteria. Suddenly, the tree smashes through the window behind Timmy, trips over a couple eating kids and some benches, curses, tips over to... Tiptoes over to Timmy and whispers, Yeah, I thought now would be a good time for you to hear that third story. Uh, I'm doing a lot of tweaking. I really think it's in a good place right now. Once upon a time, there was an invisible man, but he, one day he didn't want to be invisible anymore, so he could just stop it at will. The end. Well, that's not even a story. What are you whispering for? You're either a figment of the imagination or these people already see you. The cafeteria workers all, Yeah, we can see him. <laughs> Cool story, bro. <laughs> Class stoner. <laughs> That's the only one he got to hear, though. The cafeteria work. So he's only that one to go by. They built. The class stoner plucks some bud off the tree's buttock, smokes it, coughs for 10 minutes, and goes, There are any bigger trees? I look over at Wold Doll sitting beside me and go, I think I know which character Dinga says. Timmy's all, no one stops beating me up and wishes me mom a healthy recovery. Roar! <laughs> Steerforth turns around in slow motion, much to the normal speed bafflement of his companions. The bully with the <laughs> dumb hair points and goes, look how small and upset Timmy is. Run! <laughs> but it's too late. They're already off screen. Later in a school psychologist's office... So you put a kid 12 times your size in the hospital just by screaming in slow motion because a magic tree told you that you weren't invisible? That's it. You're expelled. Fuck your mom. To celebrate his victory over the British educational system, Timmy goes to a church he doesn't belong to. The tree finishes peeing behind a guy drinking beer, zips up, then comes over to Timmy and goes, Okay, time for your story. Abruptly, the nearby church and ground lose interest and fall into the ocean. Timmy suddenly <laughs> finds his mom hang on to his hand as she dangles over the abyss. She's like, Timmy, this isn't a dream. Don't let go of me, you idiot. <laughs> Timmy looks up at the tree and goes, I just want the movie to be over. <laughs> the tree's all, now that's storytelling. Tree, Timmy tries to jump into the hole to save his mom, but the tree wisely prevents him by catching him. The tree's all, don't worry, Timmy, I accept your bluff. This time, Timmy wakes up screaming with closure as Sigourney Weaver gently shoves him towards a stairway. She's all, your room's upstairs. By the way, here's the only clock I was able to afford to replace the one that you broke. She points to the moving dippy bird toy from the beginning of Bailey. <laughs> 
Timmy goes up to his room, looks at his race car bed and his talisman expansions and goes, oh, well, at least she's not Naomi Rapace. Across town, Steerforth, the bully's mom, watches as Timmy's dead mom's bed is burned and then a new bed slid in and her son's laid on top of it, still in traction from the injuries sustained in his fight with Timmy. <laughs> she's all, I guess there's a certain irony to all this. The tree smashes through the window behind her and yells, Don't worry, now it's my turn to heal you. <laughs> and this time I got five brain teasers and a math problem. At the end. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you, Kelly Wand. Boom. <clears throat> Monster calls. All right. Uh, I don't, did anyone, was anyone into this? Who wants to go first with an over-under? <sighs> my over is Terms of Endearment. It's movies about dying moms. Mm-hmm. And my under's 13 ghosts, because there's a dying mom in that, but she's a ghost. And she, like, carries around her IV tube with oh, her. I, I vaguely remember that. That's not the one with the ship, is it? No, that's ghost ship. Right, right, of course. How could I forget that? Is, that have the, is 13 ghosts the one with that uh, very statuesque topless ghost? That Shannon Elizabeth? Oh, the ghost who, like, mangles her face. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember the face very much, but yeah, okay, that's the one. With... These heads in a cage. The ghosts are kind of cool looking, but right. then the rest of the movie is terrible. And Tony so this, this is better than 13 Ghosts, but not quite as good as Terms of Endearment, you're saying? Yeah. Okay, as far as dying mom movies go. Mm-hmm. All right. That was my, uh, that, those were my brackets. Sure, sure. I like to say, in the sports world. Dingus, what uh, are your over-unders? Did you didn't like close? the movie? No, didn't like. Right? Okay. Okay. It's not fun. I don't think kids would enjoy it, or adults. But <laughs> that's just me. Dingus, you're the smart one. Oh, really? Well, on kids' movies, right? Uh, this is not a kids' movie. I don't know who this movie is for. Honestly, it is not a kids' movie. I had actually briefly entertained taking my kid to it just because it was so hard to find a proper time to take to even see this movie. And I thought, well, it looks kind of like something might be going on with Groot, um, but I'm so glad I did not take my kid to see this. I don't know. I don't know who this kid, this movie is for. I honestly don't. Uh, anyway, for over-unders, um, they're not bracketed. Uh, I mean, the under is kind of bracketed. I, I, I just went with movies about letting go, since that seems to be one of the 300 uh, things that this movie seems to be making a theme about. Um, so my under would be Dan in real life. Uh, wow. <laughs> I didn't really care for. That's your over? That's my under. Oh, it's your under, sorry. I was getting who, who is the love interest that he meets at the bookstore in Dan in real life? Do you recall offhand? I think it's Juliet Binoche. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, she, she, yeah it's sort of like, what's she doing here? Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're, you're immediately like, well, how did you wind up in this movie? Um, <laughs> they look so good together, and, though. And Steve Krill is fine, but he's just sort of moping around in the... Uh, yeah. I, I don't I like Dan in real life. I want to murder that title. I, I want to murder the poster of him lying with his head on a stack of pancakes. Why do you um, hate that poster? I, I mean, I like... Go stupid. ahead. It, it makes me want to see the movie. Like, what is the deal that this guy is just so not into life that uh, he lays his head down on pancakes? That, uh, or I, bored I, by pancakes. <laughs> right. But, I mean, it makes sense for, like, the whole, like, letting go because he's a widower and all of that. Um, and the the over is... 
skyrocketing over this, and I'm just doing this because I want to mention a movie I love, and I don't, I, I really can't bracket this. I, I really tried to, and I had a couple other movies that were so far over as well. So I'm just going to mention Truly Madly Deeply, which is my favorite movie about letting go. Man, that's quite an over, Dingus. Yeah, it's it's. It, I mean, again, it's skyrocketing over. But with right. a movie that I I disliked as much as I like as I disliked this, I had to choose Truly Madly Deeply. Yeah, I also can't. I mean, some a movie that I think is this sort of soggy and tepid. I don't really think there's any point in bracketing it. So what I did was I went with movies about. Uh, children being befriended by weird creatures, by monsters. Uh, and my under is the Peach Dragon remake. Oh, you saw that? No. Good lord. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. <laughs> I can't imagine it's any good. Uh, I didn't realize this when I was looking it up. It's directed by a guy named David Lowry, who is a director in a really underrepresented genre. Uh, and that genre is... Uh, forgettable movies that star Casey Affleck and or Ben Foster. Wow. He did a movie called Ain't Them Bodies Saints, uh, which is a good-looking movie, but it's it's Casey Affleck and Ben Foster, and it's just very forgettable. So they had that guy go and do the Peach Dragon remake. So anyway, Peach Dragon being about a little kid befriending a dragon, I have no idea why or what they do or if they fight crime or whatever. I don't even think I've seen the original one. I can't imagine it's any good. Uh, but my over, which is way, 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 way over, like Dingus's truly madly deeply pick, uh, I think what this movie is trying to do is a kind of a My Neighbor Totoro approach, mm. where uh, it's, it's about a child learning about uh, grieving and fear. Uh, in, in, the, in My Neighbor Totoro, it's about these two little girls whose mother is, gets sick and may or may not die. And it's, they befriend these Totoro creatures who uh, very non-verbally and through these strange flights of fancy uh they're sort of a a metaphor or an allegory for these little girls learning how to deal with grief and being exposed to grief and the the potential of sickness not at all (laughs) (laughs) yeah what well those those twins had to learn about grief (laughs) this movie is about the uh making of the big wheel so, so Dingus, you say it's not for kids, because I was wondering that, too. Is it, am I just not liking this because it's aimed at kids, or uh, it is – so J.A. Bayona, I, I realized also, I don't think I've seen The Orphanage. Have you guys seen that, his, his first movie? Yeah, I watched that this week. And? Uh, I like mm-hmm. it, if I remember. Okay. I, More than I this. Don't, I don't. Well, it's better than this. It's the one about the creepy kids, and it's Spanish. I realized that I had been confusing it for a long time with Devil's Backbone. I like that is, one, too. Which is about an orphanage with a ghost in it. I don't think I've ever seen the orphanage. Uh, so Dingus, how, ghost, I think. Okay. So, Dingus, how, how is the orphanage, his first movie? Because obviously it got him some, some recognition. Um, it, it's okay. I mean, it's okay, yeah. It's just okay. It kind of, it kind of like is the, this sort of like is you is, is you ain't kind of movies. Uh, are we in uh, a spiritual world? Not spiritual, but is is the place haunted or is it not? Uh-huh. Um, that kind of thing that, that keeps you guessing until the end. Uh, but I, I just think it's, I don't know, a little it's dragging. It's labyrinth. Awesome. It's, it's, yeah, it's trying, it's going, it's got like a pan's labyrinth vibe, but it just doesn't get there. Well, certainly, it, Go ahead. 
Benicio del Toro was sort of his mentor and helped him get that made uh, and helped him get more money for it. So uh, obviously Pan's Labyrinth uh, is something that he was influenced uh, by. Not Benicio del Toro. Oh, Guillermo del Toro. One yeah. of the del Toro brothers. I del Toros. It. They look so similar. <laughs> the del Toros, right. Uh, so, yeah, I could see. Uh, so I, I will say, though, this, this director, J.A. Bayona, has done maybe – I would say about 15 minutes of amazing filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Boy, you are right about that. Holy oh, cats. Did you, you finally see this? I, well, I watched about 45 minutes of it, and holy cow, that first 15 to 30 minutes is amazing. So it actually kicks in. Like We, we get about 12 minutes of showing that these – these white parents who are going on vacation with their three little precocious kids, uh, they're just kind of normal and they're kind of upper middle class and they're dealing with, oh, the stress of an uncertain job. And they're here from Japan and they're, they're at a tropical resort. And we get 12 minutes of that. And then they get hit by a tsunami. And uh, it, you, you're watching The Impossible, which is J.A. Bona's second movie. Uh, and The Impossible ultimately becomes, to me, a hugely grating movie about how white people really – should not be afflicted with tragedy, so we're going to make an uplifting movie about how they prevail over tragedy, and never mind the literally hundreds of thousands of brown people who suffered. Uh, it's uh, it's just a weirdly uncomfortable movie, and it's been accused of uh, whitewashing in the sense that you know this afflicted a million. Uh, people who weren't white vacationers, and this is the story we're going to tell about it. Uh, a story where nobody dies, by the way. Everybody's fine at the end of, of The Impossible. Um, but that sequence, that tsunami sequence, if you look at that as a disaster movie sequence, uh, the combination of the, the pacing and the imagery and the chaos that he paints, the special effects, uh, the acting with Naomi Watts, and an incredible, I think previously unseen, I don't know that I'd seen him anywhere before, an incredible young actor named Tom Holland who will be Yeah, seen. I didn't expect to see him in this. I forgot that you told me he was in this. And throughout the rest of it, I mean the rest of it when it becomes a sort of a hallmark, hey, white people special movie. Yeah, Tom Holland's the new Spider-Man. He's in the Avengers, the last Avengers movie. Um, no, Civil yeah, War movie. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. the last Avengers movie, though, technically. Yeah, right. Uh, and he's been, you know, Tom Holland has made quite a career for himself. The kid's uh, amazing. He's one of the voices in Locke, who uh, has just basically voice acting with with uh, with Tom Hardy. Oh, he's the guy. No, he plays son. he plays with his son. Yeah, uh, he's in a movie called Where I Live Now, which is a young adult post apocalypse thing, uh, and he stands out. It's a terrible movie, but I, the guy's amazing. So, at any rate, you know that tsunami sequence in The Impossible. Uh, J. A. Bayona, and I don't know how much credit he deserves, or if it, one of those, if it was one of those things where the sequence was kind of turned over to a second unit director or a special effects house or something. But for whatever reason, that's just a fantastic bit of filmmaking. Um, and, and because I hadn't seen the orphanage, uh, I, well, yeah, I, I, I there, well, there's no sign. To, I think there's no sign of that in uh, a Monster Calls. Yeah. That that kind of the pacing. orphanage, frankly, yeah. feels like a second rate. The others. Um, and it, it, that would be below what is going on. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the ham handed way he's dealing with things here. Uh, I, it's not as ham handed in the orphanage, but it feels like, you know, how I, I thought the others was a pretty good movie. That feels like, uh, we also made this movie. 
Well, it does – like, Dingus, I love that you mentioned that it seems to be making 100 points because there were, there were times I was watching it and was going, what, what is the, what's the, mor- the moral of the story going to be? What's, is it about storytelling? Is it about grief? Is yeah. it about letting go? Is it about – and several times – and I think this gets to an issue with the screenwriter who happens to also be the novelist. Uh, there are several times where it seems like the movie is making clear and pronouncing this is what it's about, you know, whether it's right. – if you if you have to break something, really break it, uh, okay? Or or uh, humans are complicated. At one point, that's or, or there's something about you know speak the truth. There's there are all these little bits that seem to be you know that, that like we've talked previously about movies where you could find like one line that kind of distills the movie, and mm-hmm. it feels like this movie is just throwing a bunch of those at a wall to see if anything sticks, and it's just really awkward and scattershot. Uh, I can't tell if we're supposed to think that Sigourney Weaver is a kind of a villain or but, – but I do wonder, does Patrick Ness – is the fact that he wrote this novel, which presumably people liked enough to see through to being adapted as a, a major motion picture. Uh, does Patrick Ness – is he just not a good screenwriter? Uh, is the novel terrible? Could, you, could a good screenwriter have done something with this? Um, I think so if, if, you can, if you can actually make a point because – uh, that's what I, I just kept getting so frustrated with. Oh, okay. Uh, for, first of all, I get frustrated by the whole bully thing. And maybe it was just because I'd seen Mo- Moonlight so recently and that was done well there. And I'm getting a little tired now of this bully, this bullying thing as a shorthand for something else. Um, and I, yeah, like what role did it occupy in this movie? I'm not even I, sure. I mean, I guess I, I show us that he gets angry at one point. I don't know. I don't. I honestly don't know. Or that, I, yeah, I, I can't, can't figure that out. Or you know, you know, when when uh, Aslan Tree says uh, stories are what I use to defeat my enemies. Well, he's he's talking to an artist who paints things and draws things. Okay, so stories are going to really going to defeat the enemies. Well, maybe not. Um, and then life is in the eyes that the mom says. Well, then turns out as beautiful as those drawings are, there's no eyes in any of them, and there's no eyes in any <laughs> animation. I didn't even think yeah. of that. You're right. The eyes are like little tiny circles well, in that well, style. At the end, there's no eyes at all. It's it's just like okay, there's this death, there's this eyes. I mean, I didn't understand any of what they were talking about. And it, it it just was continually frustrating. I mean, that whole as destruction goes, this was pretty pitiful. Was a kind of a cute line, but then that whole like like you said, Tom, that if you're going to break something, just go ahead and break everything. But that never happens. Uh, I I don't I don't know what it, this is going for as a theme. It feels like this this movie is just spitting out themes, and I think it is probably the fact that the the screenwriter. Uh, is adapting his own work, and you have to be able to, you know, what what's the popular line? Uh, kill your children, kill your babies, uh, kill your loved ones, whatever the that prop popular line is about writing. You have to be able to like kill things off in order to make something streamlined. And and screenwriting is about economy, and this movie just doesn't have that. Yeah, because really a novel, frustrating. a novel, you can be dense and you can try to pack different uh, like points like that into different kinds of scenes. And uh, yeah, in a movie, you just can't afford to do that. You know, a movie's ninety minutes, and there's only so much you can do. Especially, by the way, when a lot of those ninety minutes are supposedly devoted 
to uh, like cool visuals. Yeah. Like there are long stretches of this movie where I think we're supposed to be marveling at the visuals, uh, which uh, which leads me to ask, what did you guys think of the tree or the excuse me the monster? Well, here's here's what I think. I mean, I really think that, and this is why I made that joke in my little mini synopsis is that this movie feels like it's trying to be a prequel to Guardians of the Galaxy, um, not just because of the Groot stuff, but because of the mom stuff and that whole "I'm not going to be nice to you, I'm not going to touch you, I'm going to run away and be angry," uh, and you know, it it just has this awkward stuff, and then the visuals just don't really support it. It's just a bunch of stuff that I thought was done better with Groot. I don't see anything here that's all that great. Even the breaking ground or the collapsing church, which I think was called the... I forget. I I meant to write this down when I was looking at the credits. Um, The the Fall Down Church or something like that. The the Breakaway Church, I think, is what it was called in the credits. As far as like which uh, studio or which um, effects house did this. Um, Some of that was okay, but a lot of that is just throwaway animation from a disaster movie. And it's gone back to and gone back to and gone back to. I I just don't think it's enough to prop up a movie. Well, it's clearly, I mean, I I think that it's supposed to be this idea of a crisis of faith. Like literally, uh, you know, his faith in his mother or whatever crumbling. I think it's not a real monster. So that's right. Another theme is belief. Belief is going to, is half of healing. I mean, right, right, right. So, Kelly Wand, it's not a real monster. So, go ahead. So, what, what did you think of the monster design in the presentation? Uh, that's the thing. You never get a good look at it since it's not really supposed to be there. So, with Groot, it was, you're, you're curious about how he's going to move around and stuff. But this monster is really just a soapbox in his head. So, it's hard to get a sense of, like, the rules of its behavior and mm-hmm. its appearance. And it's too big to look at. Like, it's trying to console, like, oh, look how big it is. But they do a couple of shots where you're you're supposed to see how big it is compared to the little kid. They do a couple of scale shots, but, yeah, you're right. It's definitely... what do you get from that? That he's he's a giant naked man tree, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mm, Here's here's what... So, Kelly Wand, you mentioning, yeah, of course, he's all in the kid's head, makes me think, because early on, and this, again, I think is just an instance of the movie not knowing how to say what it's trying to say... Uh, or maybe it's not sure what it's trying to say. But early on, we see him watching King Kong with his mother, and that's kind of cool. Um, but then why does – it made me think like a, a, a really visionary filmmaker, and the trailer for this, by the way, uh, lists J.A. Bayona as, quote, a visionary filmmaker. Like that's how they're selling Oh, God. But a visionary like Zack Snyder. A vi- yeah, well, there you go. A visionary filmmaker, I don't think Zack Snyder would have come up with this, but I think an astute filmmaker would have created this idea that, oh, this little kid saw a stop-motion King Kong, and that influences this monster that he imagines. And so rather than just doing a big CG giant naked man tree, you know, do some weird Ray Harryhausen-style stop-motion monster. Like maybe the kid – and that would make clear that this kid was creating this based on things that that he had seen – and, and and I guess the reveal is supposedly that, you know, his mother drew these pictures. So either 
it she was told real. And it ha- well, that's the thing. Is either it was real and it happened to her, or she told him stories and what, he forgot? <laughs> uh, or, or we as the audience are, are supposed to at this point realize, oh, the stories he got from his mother, and he's imagining them in the mouth of his grandfather as a giant naked man tree. Right, uh, right. Yeah, I didn't what know what was happening, but that's not clear at all. And yeah, I don't get yeah. uh, what that says about the mom. Like, she's a great storyteller, because we don't get any of that from their conversations. And did he not see these pictures before? Right. Yeah, like whatever that point at the end where I think Jay Bayona thinks we in the audience are going, oh, instead, <laughs> I don't think that came across at all. Because in Arrival, which I know you didn't like, but it's huh? like there's a similar re- reveal at the end. And you go, oh, but you're supposed to go, oh, because it's right, like, right, right. Like, I mean, yeah, in any, in any good movie that wants to sort of change the point you think you're watching and reveal something different. Yeah, then that, that's clear. Like a movie needs to make that clear. Uh, and this one's busy throwing around all these little aphorisms. Um, yeah, yeah, he rather, forgot the stories. Yeah. Which is what I think happened. Then that makes it seem like she's not a good storyteller. <laughs> like he doesn't. <laughs> So, Kelly, do you think, just because I, I don't know, but, but you're, you're sort of guessing the idea is that uh, Felicity Jones had told him these stories. It had kind of entered his subconscious because he wasn't really listening or he forgot. And they were manifested when she's dying and he's dealing with that. And it's only after she's gone and Sigourney Weaver gives her, hey, here's your mom's art book, that he realizes, oh, yeah, my mom told me these stories. Like, is that, is that sort of what you're imagining was supposed to be going or on? Or that since it's his mom, they have a connection Slash mm. tele- like, tel- telepathic connection, and so she was drawing those things. Right, maybe while they were. Well, that that shot. Well, he's like collapsed upon her once he's decided not to be angry anymore and hold her, and she sees the she sees the you know tree as land behind him. Is that supposed to right. give this idea of this external reality? Oh, right, exactly. Thing is, you're right. They make eye contact. They, they catch each other's eyes. She, right. she looks at the tree. I forgot about that. Of course. Right. Well, I wondered too. And uh, you know what? Maybe J. A. Bayona. He's just being ambiguous, and he's leaving it to uh, to our interpretation. But I wondered because we saw. Liam Neeson as the grandfather, which you alluded to, Dingus, in mm-hmm. pictures, and nobody yep. doesn't look at that and think, oh, yeah, that's the voice of the tree. You know, yep. we as an audience, like that's something that you would culturally be aware of when you're – anybody who watches this movie is that the guy voicing the trees, the guy in the picture of his grandfather. Like at that point are, is the idea maybe that the grandfather passed these stories down to Felicity Jones and maybe she didn't tell her son because she was busy drawing pictures or but, she's die, She's about to die, and the last thing you see, like if you're dead, you go to the land of the tree, and it's like a, he's a. Well, I'm ghost. thinking more. It's this idea that it's some sort of family thing, like whatever got passed yeah. down to her from her dad, she then passed down in the guise of her dad telling stories to him. Um, like I would have liked that kind of reveal, by the way. This right. idea that really what we're seeing here is the legacy of a grandfather storyteller. And not a kid just imagining some tree telling them weird animated stories. Um, right, and that's why I almost, I almost picked Princess Bride as my over because of the grandfather storyteller thing. Well, that, so what, what did we think of the storytelling? Well, before, before you answer that, let me just say um, you're right. I think you're right, Tom, about Jay Bionna just wanting it to be ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I sat through the credits of this silly movie. Uh, did we miss a Did we miss a button at the end? 
We did not miss a button, but I was at an arc light, and at the after after arc light, sometimes there's like an extra like feature where there's uh, interviews with people. And as I packed up my stuff and headed out, um, kind of quietly, because there were a couple other people who were still in the theater, um, he was saying, you know, I kind of wanted to make a movie where, you know, you had to decide what was happening at the end. So I think he was trying to leave it ambiguous. I, I don't think he knows what this movie is about. <laughs> Patrick Ness just came to him and said, here's the script. You just shoot it. And Jay Bayona shrugs and, okay. <laughs> yeah. One of, one of the things that I really missed from this, too, is I never got a sense of uh, kid logic or a kid's perspective. Uh, a movie that, that made my top ten list, which I, I love – didn't work so much for Dingus for various reasons, but one of my favorite things about a movie called Cop Car is that it really captures this idea of kid logic and how kids look at things and react to things and think of things and how they imagine yeah. things. Uh, you know, Cop Car is really good at that. There are a few movies that are really good at that. There's there's a, a brilliant, almost never seen movie by a guy named Philip Ridley called The Reflecting Skin, which is about a, a kid who's worried about his brother leaving him because his brother falls in love with a woman. So he imagines that the woman is a vampire, and it, it's this idea of of how terrifying things are for children and how they will cast those things as monsters. Um, what was almost my over because I wanted to make a point to. Make mention it, but it's not quite the same pattern. Uh, so in this movie, the monster befriends the, the, the child, right? Very much like Pete's Dragon, very much like my neighbor Totoro. Uh, there's a guy named Larry Fessenden who does horror movies, and he does uh, this kind of... Well, he's, he's an indie East Coast filmmaker, and he's done a, a fair amount of horror movies, some of which are, are really good, some of which stink. His last one was about a bunch of teenagers fighting in a, in a rowboat, fighting a big old rubber catfish. Uh, it was terrible. Um, but his, his best movie is... Um, yes, Kelly Wan, questions? Just picturing that movie, sir. <laughs> it's called, I think, something like Beneath. And the reason I watched it is I think it's being sold as like that creep show segment where the kids are trapped on the platform. Oh, the raft? The, yeah, yeah, the raft, which is actually very cool. So I think in Beneath, he was trying to do that as well, uh, but it didn't quite come across. That's what I thought the plot of Catfish was going to be. <laughs> I went into Catfish. I was and you, got, you got Catfished. And I got Catfished. Yeah. But Larry Fessenden's best movie, I, I think, is something called Wendigo. And it's about a little boy who is going with his parents to stay at a cabin like during the winter. Um, and he imagines... As his family is falling apart, as things are happening, as, as there are various misfortunes afflicting his family, he imagines a Wendigo, a monster. Uh, and a Wendigo is a, from a Native American uh, myth, and it's just a, it's, a, it's a winter monster, basically. So Larry Fessenden tells this story about this little kid imagining or maybe not imagining this monster as a way of dealing with these terrible things that happened to his family. Uh, and, uh, and, and I love how Wendigo captures this idea of kid logic is, of course, the kid associates this monster. This is why terrible things happen, is because monsters come and do horrible things to you. And there was just none of that here. This very much did feel like an adult telling a story. Um, and there was very little, it felt like, being from the, the kid's perspective. And yeah, I if it's from his, Right. Because if it is from his perspective, then why was he so confused by all the stories? Yeah. Right, exactly, Kelly. Well, right, right, because this is all his brain at work. Yeah. Is his brain, like, smarter than he is or something? Yeah. His right, brain's right. fucking with him. Yeah. And his brain's teaching him closure. But, but, 
I, I just in the little pushback, I do like the idea that he says that these that stories don't have value. That's a dumb story. This is stupid. I mean, this is very much in keeping with I think with what would be going on with him psychologically as far as shutting himself his own self down. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. But if he doesn't know what apothecary is, <laughs> I did. I did kind of. I, I, I really was hoping that there was going to be some better payoff with these stories because as they're spinning out, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, let's see yeah. where this goes. This is intriguing. And it, it did feel like Patrick Ness wrote uh, a few little kid stories and decided to thread them together with some sort of a narrative. Uh, so it seemed like these stories got sort of jammed into this, and I, I'm not clear how they related, especially that last Invisible Man one. I was thinking, yeah, you know, he's going to build to something, and he does the Invisible Man bit, and I'm I'm thinking that's that's all you got, really. Yeah, that's, that's your perfect. third. That's the final story. That's yeah. what the tree was sandbagging. <laughs> the and he even made us wait for it in a convenient way. Like, okay, he 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 appears and says, "This isn't the time for the third story yet. I'm just right. going to sit on the roof for a minute. Yeah, and yeah. then I'm going to tell you the third story later." So you're thinking, "Whoa, it's going to be big, isn't it?" Yeah, <laughs> climax. And also oh. him destroying all the stuff. Mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver's like Sigourney Weaver hasn't been set up as a character where we want that to happen to her necessarily. I don't know. It seemed know. a little. It felt like a shark jump moment. The way when in Ferris Bueller when Cameron breaks the car, that was a shark jump. Like what? This, I thought this movie was Ferris Bueller and fun. I don't, I don't think it was clear on what it was supposed to do with Sigourney Weaver. I mean, I think we're supposed to think, yeah. oh, it's evil grandma. But at the end, nope, all along she's been loving and she wants what's best for him. And yeah, I and guess he's nuts because if he had a blackout that long. <laughs> right, yeah. And we don't yeah, see the kids and help. I mean, that's, this is we- that's just weird. I don't believe yeah. any of that. Right, I don't either. I don't so, buy the- well, First of all, I don't want that to happen to anybody's house. <laughs> I don't yeah. care who they are. It's just weird. It's just who are we supposed to be rooting for here? And I guess that's part of the, you know, like sometimes there's not a good guy, you know, that kind of thing that's in one of those stories. It made me think, Dingus, of the dysfunctionality in that movie. I'm going to call it Destruction. That's probably not right. That Jake Gyllenhaal movie, Destruction? Uh, demolition. demolition. Demolition, yeah. Yes. Uh, just the dysfunctionality of the destruction scene in that. And it right. knows, like, it, to its credit, Demolition knows it's being dysfunctional there. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's a but kid just does, gleefully that. destroying stuff. Right. I don't think this movie really has a sense for that. Especially considering Felicity Jones is, if you've got to break something, break it really hard. Break all my mom's stuff, <laughs> specifically. Not your stuff. Break my mom's Did mom. you guys at least think Felicity Jones was good in this? I did not, I said I want to talk about the actors, because I... I don't I I don't think movies know what to do with Felicity Jones. I'm sad to say. I didn't see her uh what's the one with Stephen Hawking she's on? I didn't see that one either, Theory of Everything. Yeah. yeah. I only know her from The Whole Truth where she plays Jonah Hill's wife, which I think, you know, she's really cute but kind of mousy, so yeah, she can play a fat dude's wife. I think that was the Hollywood casting there. Uh you guys know how I feel about Rogue One. I didn't feel she fit there, yeah. and I don't. I don't think she pulled this off, Dingus. I mean, I really. It's a thankless role, though, too. It's a thankless role writing, but I thought she was kind of just like, like flat. She's I don't know. With me, she's over what? She's over two with me. I've only seen okay. her in this and Rogue One, and both times she didn't make any impression on me. Well, Dingus, so did, did you like what she was doing here? Did she work for you? Because you, you kind of enjoyed her in in Rogue One, I think. She was the kid. Yeah, yeah. Who, um, I thought she was fine, but she's, you know, the, 
Again, I, I, I'm sorry to keep bringing up Guardians, but Guardians of, I, Guardians of the Galaxy kept occurring to me because of those hospital scenes and and the way this was going. And the woman, that actress in Guardians who's playing Meredith Quill is this actress named Laura Haddock, and I thought that she was better in much less time. I mean, she just conveyed this other sense, the sense of the other I don't know. And I think that Felicity Jones was supposed to be conveying something else. And I just never got it. Yeah, I I didn't. I didn't really. I mean, I thought she was fine. But I just thought she was fine. And, you know, from the moment she's walking downstairs with, you know, I mean, I did kind of like that moment where he's like, so this is a VCR. I thought that was cute. Um and I, I think she, I, I think she's fine, but I don't, I don't think she does anything great. She was on uh, Saturday Night Live this last weekend to promote the movie, um, and you know Saturday Night Live is awful anyway. But she, the poor girl just seemed so hapless during the most of the skits. Like she wasn't quite yeah. sure what to do, and even the opening monologue. Like I, she's a, she's a, she's an adorable woman, but I just don't think she's got much presence uh and i don't know that movies know that and you know that was kind of clear in saturday night live which is a little sad um let's talk about the boy though what thing is what was his name mcdougall what, do you remember i meant to write that down did you say his name his name is lewis mcdougall yes mcdougall right okay uh all right what do we think of him I I, first of all i want to say he looks to me because i'm sitting there watching and going who does he look like this this McDougal kid, he is what if you crossed Tom Hanks with Dexter Fletcher and then de-aged him down to 10 years old? Who's Dexter, Dexter Fletcher? Seriously? Oh, he's the guy in, from Dexter? No, he was in that movie with Ioni Skye, uh, where she's like Rachel something. Shoot, what is it? He's a British actor, a young kid. Uh, well, he's not. Anyway. How do you guys not know who Dexter Fletcher is? Oh, dadgummit. Well, fine. At any rate, suffice to say, he looks like James McDougal. There. Wow, that's true. <laughs> the Long Island McDougals. Um, I thought Valley. I thought Lewis, Lewis McDougal was just. I mean, he just had to scream a lot and look yeah. pained. Yeah. Um, part of the problem is that I'm coming from watching the performances in Moonlight, which dealt with all this bully. Bullying yeah, crap. And again, the bullying stuff it was. I'm kind of over that now, um, and so I, I just thought that he just had to look sullen and and then scream sometimes. And I don't, I don't, yeah, like that. I, I mean, the poor kid doesn't know any better. But those screaming scenes, I mean, it was just like a kid overacting, and that's kind of embarrassing. I mean, he was trying, uh, but I don't think he had any sort of emotional grounding for that. And I just felt bad for the poor guy when he was like trying to like capital A act during some of those grieving right. scenes. Um, and I think he's just having to do a ton of green screen or being carried around by <sighs> booms and he and some people just can't do that. Dingus, you know what? That's an excellent point. It didn't occur to me how, how accustomed we are to watching actors being really good with CG, like Naomi Watts with King Kong and stuff. And, you know, right. we we, all, we expect that, kind of. And so I bet you're absolutely right. This poor kid expecting him to scream and react to the TV because with another actor, another actor working with a child can be a huge asset because the actor can, yep. can do whatever needs to be done to bring that performance out of a child. I saw a movie tonight uh, called The Monster. Not a monster calls the monster, and it's done by the guy who did uh, The Strangers, which, which opens hilariously with Scott Speedman being dumped by uh, 
I think it's Kate Beckinsale, which is hilarious. Tyler. Liv Tyler, thank you, Kelly. Jesus. Uh, and then, and then, and then they have a home invasion movie. But anyway, the, the guy who did that movie just did something called the monster, and the monster is an amazing two thirds of a movie in which uh, Zoe Kazan, who I think is a little underrated, uh, Zoe Kazan and a child actress who just knocked my socks off called Ella Ballantyne, uh, they play a mother-daughter, and it's a very dysfunctional relationship. The mother's very alcoholic, and not just in a junkies or tedious way, but in an alcoholics or abusive way, and it's a really riveting relationship between the two of them. Both actresses are so good, and you can tell the little girl, Ella Ballantyne, is just so connecting with what Zoe Kazan is doing, and vice versa. And they're so good with each other, and unfortunately, it ends up becoming just a stupid horror movie. But the first parts of it are very much, in a way, like A Monster Calls, in that this monster represents the manifestation of, of, of Zoe Kazan's of her mother's alcoholism. Uh, but it becomes a stupid horror movie, and it's dumb. But it's the exact opposite of watching that poor little kid screaming at green screen, is watching Ella Ballantyne and Zoe Kazan just looking at each other and reacting to each other. And uh, just they're both so good. So, yeah, this poor kid just having to sit there alone, dangling from a boom, like Dingus said, uh, yelling at a green screen. That's just really disappointing to watch. Well, it prattles exposition, Adam. Yeah. Like, the tree doesn't take him on a bunch of magical adventures. It, like, torments him and, like, talks shit and... Uh, right. It's not like it takes him into these stories. Yeah, it's not that at all. He's sitting there listening. Yeah, yeah passive. Um, but I didn't even notice that was Liam Neeson in the picture, so I just assumed... <laughs> Kelly Wand. It was a You're random tree <laughs> for the movie. You're so anti-gray. Yeah, he was the green. One, two, three, not only you and me, got 180 degrees, and I'm caught in between. Counting. One, two, three, Peter Pan, Mary Free, getting down with three feet, everybody loves old Very nice, Kelly Wand. What? The green. Oh. I like that. Yeah. Favorite. <laughs> uh, well, did I miss anything? Is there anything else you guys wanted to bring up? Sorry to cut that off. We didn't talk about Sigourney's British accent, but... I think, Kelly Wand, you told us all we needed to know about it in the synopsis. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you. Dingus, quick, because I'm sure you noticed, it occurs to me. Dingus, how is the music in this movie? I honestly couldn't tell you. You're our music. You tend to be the one who notes music in movies. Stirring. Was it stirring? <laughs> oh, boy. I, I couldn't tell you either. It, okay. It just it felt entirely generic. And then, by the way, uh, I was in a theater that was that had maybe 12 people in it, all adults, no kids, and two people left halfway through. Oh, snap. Uh, yeah. That's the thing. It only is going to resonate with the kid whose mom is dying, and that's the last movie they're going to want to watch. Yeah. <laughs> And I cried a lot, but I'm an easy cry, uh, just as I'm an easy laugh. That has nothing to do with whether the movie's good or not. And I resented crying. <laughs> uh, I want to send a quick shout-out to, to uh, production designers out there. If you're going to adorn a 10-year-old boy's desk, no 10-year-old boy in his right mind these days is going to have a big old 12-inch model of uh, Dr. Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. That's so like uh, that's so. Well, like, he's an artist. He's a creative type. He's oh, like, was that, her, was that her desk or? No, it's his. De- oh, you know what? It, I think it was the desk Sigourney Weaver set up. So maybe the thinking is that Sigourney Weaver's too old to know what monsters kids like. 
Oh, I don't know. But I just saw – it's one of those things like noticing new, news crawls. Like, no, kids aren't into Frankenstein these days. There's not a kid on this planet who cares one whit about Frankenstein. If there's a news crawl about Frankenstein, they zone out. <laughs> Watch out. Oh, you know what? I'm such an idiot. I forgot to bring up anything that Chris uh, Chris Markinson wrote in something. Oh, about. all right. Well, if he, if he suffered through it, we should know what he thought. The thing is, what did Chris Markinson think of uh, this movie? I'm going to feel oh, bad, well, bad if he liked it. Well, he, he, he says he was flipping between, you know, I kind of like this, and it had one or two moments, but meh. Yeah, um, okay. I agree with uh, that. Uh, oh, and, oh, this is a really good point, actually. He, he said he, there was a point in the movie where Connor starts to draw that he started thinking about the Pearl Jam song, Jeremy. Um, I'm glad oh. it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> it, it kind of did in a way, though, um, since he put a kid in the hospital. But, uh, but yeah, that's a really actually a good point. I mean, I, I have to say I liked the animation. I don't think it fits with yeah. this movie. Yeah. I like it from a, like a short film point of view, but I like what... Chris just says there. Um, I just now realized, Dingus, his name was Connor. We made fun of you for pointing out the name Connor. And I na- okay, I understand things now. You get, get it? it? All right. Yeah. Sometimes it takes me about an hour or so, but I eventually understand things. And Kelly constantly called him Timmy. Uh-huh, yeah. Kelly. I, oh, my gosh, you guys. Very nice. Yeah, I'm a little slow, but I'll get there. Good. Dingus, uh, um, you didn't get it. My work is done. <laughs> Uh, and Chris also likes the line stories are wild creatures which I, I really did like that too they weren't this movie like where, where in this movie did we see like a story being a wild creature getting out of control no Invisible I, man. I agree that it doesn't go anywhere but I like the line Just the stories are wild creatures and if you release them who knows what havoc they will create or will wreak um, I, I like the idea of that line I just don't think it plays out in this movie also Vietnamese women like I, I suspect Dingus that Patrick Ness is very proud of that line what do you mean what what kelly wand i i I was thinking about something else i'm sorry oh wild are wild creatures is that true well i i that's what i heard i didn't huh how about that racial things blocker and talk kelly wand i'd like you to do something for us right now oh i would like you to tell us for this week's three by three your third favorite opening shot in a movie because that is the topic and you will be introducing next week's 3x3, three three, uh, which will actually be two weeks from now, but we'll explain that later. Uh, so start us off with your third favorite opening shot in a movie. Uh, okay. I found this a challenging topic, but kind of fun, too. Mm-hmm. But it's also hard to find bad openings of movies on the interwebs because... Like the good, part, the good parts of movies tend to be what gets posted, right? Yeah, the, right. Yeah. No one makes fun. Like, look how stupid this opening is. They just post the whole movie or nothing. But my number three is for the motion picture. Or I'll do a quote from it. Oh, good, yes. Misa turn empire over to uh, the emperor. <laughs> it's on. What's wrong with the opening scene of, of the prequels? The third one, it opens with a big space battle, and there's like a bunch of ships flying around. But then you you have no idea what any of the ships are doing, and they all wind up being <laughs> irrelevant. And then Wait, what, flies what, down. What do you consider the third one? Just to, so I know. Oh, Revenge of the S- Sniff. Okay, good. Okay, just making sure. Because in New Hope, it opens with a giant star destroyer chasing. A, Princess Leia. It actually does not. And this is this is this is my number three pick, by the way. It does not. 
The opening about, no, it opens I've with the... two things. Two things, Kelly Wand. It is not called New Hope. It is called Star Wars. The second thing is that is not the opening shot of Star Wars. The opening shot of Star Wars, which is my number three pick, so I'll jump ahead and we'll get back to Dingus' number three in a second. The opening shot, and I think this is one of the worst opening shots of all, uh, I've chosen, by the way, for worst opening shots, movies that I really, really like. Actually, movies that I love. Uh I think the opening shots are terrible. The opening shot of Star Wars is basically George Lucas telling us about his D&D campaign. It's a text crawl. Star Wars opens with text that is completely superfluous. There is nothing in that crawl that we can't infer from what we're about to see on screen or that we really don't need to know. Star Wars should open with this amazing shot. Here's a big ship flying overhead. Whoa, here's an even bigger ship. Um, The fact that we have to sit there and read a couple of paragraphs about the rebellion and the the galaxies and the civil war and – that's, that's nonsense. That's just a terrible way to open a movie. Uh, you know, the whole show, don't tell. We don't need to be told George Lucas' D&D campaign before Star Wars. Mm. So, Kelly Wan, is, is actually, is there, isn't there an opening crawl? You know, I'm not putting... Yeah, and it's worse than that one, so in a way, I still win, because the Revenge of the Sith crawl is really stupid. Well, I, I vividly remember, and I think this is the point that a lot of people were like, uh, uh-oh, uh, the opening crawl in Phantom Menace, you know, when before anybody knew that the prequels were going to be trash. You know, there's all this nonsense about a Trade Federation thing. You're like, what, wait, uh, huh? What, why well, there's this? Because there's what? Calls them- there's mistakes in it, too, because I think it calls them Jedi Knights, and Obi-Wan's like a Padawan, I think, at that moment. Like he's well, I'm not enough of a nerd to know that, but I am enough of a moviegoer to know that no interesting movie has ever been made about a trade federation. Um, so you hate all the Star Wars crawls. Like, they're all annoying. I guess so I'm, I'm, being, I'm not being entirely facetious, but I really do believe that opening with a text crawl is a bad idea. It's one thing to open with, I think it's called, is it an epigraph, where you just have like a line. And lots of movies do that. And that's cool. That's a little, it sort of gives you a little bit of tone or it sets, like um, uh, Catherine Bigelow starts Hurt Locker with uh, War is a Drug, which is, is, I think it's like from Aristotle or some classical right. reference. Uh, and, and that's great. Like that's, I think you call that an epigraph. Uh, that's a cool thing to do is just give you a little bit of a few words. But the fact that we're sitting there watching George Lucas's D&D campaign backstory slowly move across the screen, and I get what he's doing. I mean, I know it's an homage to these old serials, I guess. Uh, but I just think it's a terrible opening. Open with that spaceship flying overhead. With the, I have, the, See, I like them because it's, they're the only movies that do that. Like James well, Bond movies don't do that. Do you, I just have a question. I, I, do you like them because Star Wars does it or do you actually like them? No, I only like it in Star Wars but I just remember as a kid mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm really going back like 40 years here, like when that crawl first came up, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, I'm watching an adult movie. Oh, okay, sure, I sure. better pay attention and read this. And so that it kind of threw me off. And I remember really kind of liking that. Like, oh, cool. It wants me to like know stuff. And, like, and I, I don't want to I don't want to second guess anybody's opinion on these, but I think that's why it's acceptable to a lot of people is they saw it at 10 years old and then they were had their minds blown by Star Wars. And so they crawled my mind even too. Like it's going sure. through space in yellow font. But Kelly, one, I don't think you want. A, I don't think you want a ten-year-old evaluating whether or not an opening shot is effective. No, I don't know. You do. If, if you do. Star Wars is for ten years. Do, uh, thing is, I'm curious what you think because I, I'm I'm only partly doing this to troll you. 
but I'm curious how you feel about uh, the Star Wars opening crawl. Like, are you with me that it's a bad idea, or do you think it's a crucial part of the Star Wars? I think they're great. Okay, so Kelly Wand, pro against Dingus, we need you to break the tie. Just uh, no, I, I I love them, but part of that is emotional, uh, yeah. because uh, because of the the musical introduction to that. Yeah, thunderous orchestra music and a bunch of text, <laughs> and then the boom, a new hope, and then we get this idea of what's going on. Oh, it's 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 scrolling out like a scroll. Yeah, so it and Tom- gives me sort of a biblical sort of this is this is the past of what has gone on and now you are being led into this story that has mythology mm-hmm. uh it's it's leading you into uh, it's a direction it's it's mythology for me it's it's leading you into mythology um or out of what was myth into now we're going to let you see what is going on mm-hmm. and at, at that uh, time in my life i was totally into greek mythology i loved reading about that stuff and so seeing that scroll really scratched that itch for me. That you know, that's actually a great point, Nigus, is is if you think of it more as uh situating this movie in a mythology rather than, hey, here's a great way to open a movie. Uh yeah, I can completely understand that. And so it's really dry. Yeah. It's like the writing in that in the one you're talking about in The New Hope crawls oh. really dry and like that was so awesome as I go, oh wait, is this gonna be like a boring politics movie? And then the next shot after that, the Star Destroyer. Well Kelly Wan, oh. the uh the, No no, it's the, the little ship and then you think, oh wow, that's a big ship and then oh my God. Yeah. Right. It's, but it's, it's a first the First, the Corellian Corvette, which is no longer Corellian Corvette, it's now an Alderon cruiser. Uh then the Star Destroyer. Uh, but yeah. but they, the, uh, uh, when I was looking up the text for this, and I don't know how apocryphal this is, uh, I saw somewhere that – oh, shoot. I want to say it was – not Scorsese, but, but – so, oh, oh, De Palma. De Palma apparently uh, took the text that George Lucas had for the opening crawl and edited it down, uh, and that George Lucas's original opening crawl had all of this other ridiculous stuff in it. Uh, <laughs> which, De it's Palma not that- edited it? I think it was De Palma, yeah, and again, this is just some apocryphal thing. I don't know where this is from. If you just Google the the text for the opening crawl in Star Wars, it'll pop up. Um, but yeah, there's this way more lurid language, a lot less dry, like Kelly Wand is talking about. Like, for instance, there's a line, the Empire fears that another defeat could bring a thousand more solar systems into the rebellion, and Imperial control over the galaxy would be lost forever. I mean, you don't need that. I mean, we know why an empire doesn't want a rebellion to happen. <laughs> but, right. but George Lucas had that in there, and, and apparently uh, Brian De Palma was like, uh, "George, you can make this a little shorter. That line isn't necessary." Uh, but he did. But he did a good job, and it's a really good tease because you because you it's like, oh god, how much longer do I have to read? Oh wait, chips. <laughs> <laughs> like waiting for your food at a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tom, do you have other or either either of you have other like? text-based opening shots? No, no, because I, I do think for the most part, like a little text I said, as I mentioned, is fine, but opening with a lot of reading I think is almost never a good idea. Mine's not uh, even text. It's all in one shot. So Tom's crazy because that it still opens with the same shot, like the crawls the beginning of it. And the, So how do you feel about the text at the beginning of uh, Blade Runner? Because I considered that for a little bit. Um, uh, similarly irrelevant, yeah. I would okay. say. Yeah. I'm not even sure what it is. Like, what is the text? Because then we get voiceovers also. So that's the thing. Like, is the, yeah, I, 
Thanks, Kelly. I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. But the voiceovers is the same school of thought as the text. Like there's something really hypnotic and mesmerizing about watching Blade Runner unfold and figuring out, oh, right. it's a robot, and oh, there's, you know, she's dancing with a robot snake, and uh, and and to have text explaining to us like Deckard's frame of mind, and uh, I don't even remember what it establishes. I mean, I guess it says Los Angeles in the year. Oh well, yeah. The most important from- thing it says is this was not called execution. It was called retirement. Right. Right. But but see, now, in the conversation with M. Emmett Walsh, I think we would infer that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a cool line, Dingus, but I think a lot of times these these text openings are, you know, people aren't may not pay really close attention to what the movie's telling them, so let's get a few trenchant facts out there early on. Um, so, of, of the, I mean, these are, uh, you know, you bringing this one up. I, this is something I considered as well because I thought of this and Hunt for Red October, which does the same kind of thing, but it does this like okay. like a teletype thing. Yeah, it's yeah. like a teletype thing or Morse code or something like that, like like words being spelled out on the screen and all of what you're about to see, according to the CIA, never happened. Da, da, da. And then the wow. movie starts, you know. Right. Right. Well, that's, you know, found footage movies, and I think I'm pretty sure yeah. Blair Witch Project started with this. No, actually, Blair Witch Project, I think, just starts with the footage. But I remember uh, – Oh, Paranormal Activity Paranormal starts Activity with – Paranormal Activity starts with, yeah, yeah, the San Diego Police Department. Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sounds very official. Uh, and the, the, the Blair Witch remake that Kelly Wan and I were talking about, the Adam Wingard one also, is like this, this is footage recovered by the Burkittsville Police Station. Um, which is just, again, introduced. I mean, we're, we're going to see this found footage movie anyway, so I guess it's there to explain. Oh, I know what it is. Kelly Wand, in the Blair Witch remake, um, Adam Wingard opens. Actually, Simon Barrett wrote it. It opens with, this footage has been assembled by the Burkittsville, Maryland Police Department from memory cards found in the woods. Which, so it explains why you're watching an edited movie. <laughs> Which I thought was like, oh, thank you, Adam Wingard. You 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 want to cover your base there? Yeah, because uh, when you watch, well, that's you because you're the one. Who, you're a stickler for that. Exactly. Because Apollo 18, there's the the cameras all explode or get eaten by spiders. Right. So that should ne- that shouldn't even exist. So Adam Wingard's yeah. telling me, here's why there are scenes edited together, Tom. So shut up and go with it. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to show you a drone in a minute. It's going to be cool. <laughs> I would have. It would have been funnier if. Uh, at the beginning, it says that the witch did the editing. I, well, <laughs> and next to it, and she signed it and goes, use this print for <laughs> exhibition, and then this one is for Oscar consideration. Here's some screen. <laughs> I do want to say real, real quick, one of my... One- one of my favorite things about Rogue One was that it didn't – like I liked that we were just dropped into some, okay, here's a shuttle, an Imperial shuttle coming to a planet. Uh, okay, here's a guy coming out no to talk crawl. to other. I liked that there was no crawl because it's kind of assuming, look, you know everything at this point. We don't need to break stuff down for you. I got excited. Yeah, because they're like, fuck it. We're doing our own thing, man. Yeah, we're going to tell you in the context of the movie everything you need to know, and you you already know the world, so we're just going to go. The right. started, and I went, uh-oh. <laughs> So at any rate, so Kelly Wan, you chose uh, Revenge of the Sith. I chose Star Wars uh, for our number three worst opening shots. Dingus, sorry to skip you, but let's back out of the Star Wars talk, unless maybe you've chosen Star Wars. Dingus, what is your third worst opening shot? Uh, My uh, worst opening shot includes uh, uh, 
a bit about Star Wars in the movie. Ah, um, and I tried to clerks. use, yeah, it's clerks. Um, I tried to use uh, movies that I admire or like as well, okay. uh, or really like or admire. I mean, clerks. Uh, clerks is a movie with diminishing returns. I'm afraid. Um, the more you watch it, the less. The less. I That's like how it felt when I first watched it. Um, but the the opening shot of the movie, and, and I just watched a bunch of opening shots of the movie. It's just I first started pulling random movies, and then I just started pulling movies. I, I really wanted to go with movies I loved, uh, but unfortunately, some of this is damaged. And I, I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to watch the opening of a movie again um, without remembering how Tom talked about how annoying those opening like logo things are that then are followed by more uh, like things about them, the production company, um, the, the opening logos of movies, which are like little mini movies are increasingly annoying to me. Oh, and I the love one that you don't like them. Some of them are really annoying to me. Well, I, what I like about them, Dingus, is that they're before the movie. It's basically uh, like the name of a publisher um, right. on a book. And, and I like the fact that it's there before we get to the book proper. Like we do uh, on quarter to three, there's a whole thread about where, where you just randomly jump to the 20-minute, 20-second frame in a movie. And you do a capture of it, and then you post it, and you see if people can guess the movie. And if they can't, you then go to the 40-minute, 40 40-second they can't guess that. You go to the 60-minute, 60 60-second, 60 and so on. Uh, and I feel very strongly that you should start counting after the studio logos are done. Oh. Because um, I, I don't feel – I don't think of studio logos as part of the movie. I think of them as the packaging kind of, like the cover that, of a book less than the actual text. That makes the math almost impossible, so – well, uh, you do have to take notes. Like, you do have to do a little uh, addition and subtraction on a scratch pad, yeah. Right. But it's still worth it. <laughs> uh, it's not worth it for clerks because the opening animation for View Askew is interminable. It's this, it's this black and white dr- animated drawing of a clown who like backs up onto the screen, goes behind a blind, undresses himself, and then farts on a kid. I mean, it takes forever for you to get through the studio I feel like logo I'm there, of View Askew. Yeah, well, I mean, we've all been on that date. Um, but once we finally get past that, we get to the opening shot. And I really just tried to go with like opening shot as in like an opening frame, not like a scene, but like an actual. Wait, is that, is Clerks, Clerks is really your pick? I thought Kelly Wan was griefing you. No, 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 it is Clerks. Um, and it's just a shot of a dog lying on a bed. Um, and then the scene actually starts and it's, it's just a dog sleeping on a bed and all of this stuff and so much of Clerks is just gag. It's just a lot of gags. And eventually uh, Kevin Halloran's character just flops out of a closet. And, you know, because he's for some reason passed out in his own closet and his dog is sleeping on his bed. But I think really having read a couple of Kevin Smith's books, it was just Kevin Smith like, I'm just going to show a picture of my dog. And then there, then a, a few scenes later, there's my dog drinking out of the toilet. I really just think it's, you know, he's, he's an aspiring filmmaker and he's got a dog, put him on the bed. That, but his first shot is this dog lying on a bed looking at you. It, it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It has nothing to do with anything. And I, and for me, um, 
one of the things I, I love that, that William Goldman talks about in his book about screenwriting is, is how uh, the opening of a movie is, is when you have your time to do something. Um, you, you have time because we're there. You can get our attention now. And so I think wasted shot at the very beginning of the movie is a really missed opportunity because you've got our attention. So just showing a dog lying on a bed, really, Kevin Smith, that's what you're going to do. You're going to show a dog lying on a bed uh, and not do anything that, that isn't going to lead to anything later on. Uh, so that really bothers me for a movie that I initially liked so much and for a director that some of the things he's done, I really liked uh, that opening shot of a, just a dog sitting on a bed. It kind of pisses me off. Is it at least a cool dog? Yeah, it's a very cool dog. It's a dog I would love to own. I mean, he's a German Shepherd-looking kind of dog. Okay. Um, I mean, he's he's a little beefier than uh, my dog Honey. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's a wasted shot. I don't, well, I don't see how it sets anything up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, the opening shot. I mean, it's the handshake that a movie gives you. It's how a movie introduces itself, and right. It absolutely, I think, says – I can't imagine a director who cares about his craft doesn't agonize over what that should be. And what his eventual or her decision is, I think, will say a lot about the movie you're about to watch. Yeah. And that really makes a huge it – was, it was fascinating to me and why I like this topic so much is because uh, is because of getting to watch a bunch of opening shots and seeing what directors were doing with that yeah. moment. You know. You know, I thought of, well, what about Fargo? Well, don't be stupid. Mm. That's an iconic opening shot. Are you serious? Right. And then, and, and I kept going through, you know, movie after movie. I tried grandpa movies, which are really hard because all of the credits are front loaded. (laughs) Um, I wonder when people realize, you know what? Don't bore everyone with a bunch of that. Save that till the end. That's hilarious. so at first I tried going with, well, I really love the big sleep, so I'll try this. And it's like credit, 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 credit. And then the, that opening shot is really a perfect opening shot. It's this, this huge placard of a Sternwood on, some, on the door of the Sternwood Estates. And it's great. And I even tried Citizen Kane. Dumb idea again. I mean, after going through all the credits, and so I quit doing that because the credits were – I just don't want to go through all those credits. But time after time, I kept – even I kept stumbling upon movies that even by rookie directors that would have an opening shot that I would I would be like, oh, man, that's that's a really good opening right. shot. And I yeah. can tell you're right, Tom, that they must have agonized over that. It's, it's really hard to find a good movie that has a, a bad opening shot, I feel. Yeah. That's yep. that's certainly what it, it looks like. That's what you and I have done with our list. Dingus. So, Kelly, Wan, since you're apparently just probably going to pick bad movies like Revenge of the Sith. What's the second worst opening shot that you've come up with? And is it a crappy movie? Okay, and speed to cruise control. (laughs) (laughs) I knew we were in trouble because the opening shot of that, it's Sandra Bullock's driving lesson. She's getting her driver's license. And Tim Conway's her driving instructor. And it's reaction shots of him going, oh, while she almost crashes into stuff, which seems weird because in the first movie, her superpower was that she didn't crash into stuff. And she was like, 
a really good driver. And then and then she's going, yeah, Kid Reeves sucks. Fucking broke up with his ass. Now I'm with Jason Patrick, and because he's really cool, because he never does anything dangerous, because that's why Keanu Reeves was an idiot. And then they intercut that with Jason Patrick on a motorcycle getting boxes thrown at him from the back of a van that he's chasing up like a windy road. So Kelly, one, I'm a, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I might be in jail for this, huh? You're totally in jail because I, I'm not sure you understand the difference between a shot and a scene. Yeah, you're doing a scene. Well, anyway, that's my number two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dingus, what is your second worst opening shot of all time? All right, it's from a movie I absolutely love called House of Games. And so the first Wait, shot... Oh, is this Mammoth's first movie? Like, can we cut him slack? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I I think he doesn't quite know how to make a movie yet, and so he's trying to ease himself into the scene that he's going into rather than just getting us into the scene, okay. or uh, or making the scene more or making the first shot more relevant, because the the first shot, the House of Games, looks like a gravel like a gravel driveway. And that, yeah. and then the camera moves, and it turns out it's like a planter, like outside of like an office building or a college. It's just like um, a textured, like the side of a planter, and he's just like moving from a picture of something that looks visually interesting to him into what is actually going on in the scene. And then some guy walks across the screen and then a woman walks into the screen that's, and she's, she's carrying this, this book that uh, Lindsay Krauss's character has written called driven. And I, I honestly think that the first shot of the scene, the, of the movie probably should have been that woman walking into the, the frame with that book uh, rather than just this random shot of what looks like gravel. And I cast this against the beginning of what I remember, and I didn't look at it again, but I remember the opening of uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which which I think was something similar, but it was because the character was driving and it felt like there was motion going on and that gravel had something to do with what the driving was going and that it was going from a city to a small town. And this is just the side of a planter because David Mamet doesn't quite know how to get into the scene yet. And so I, I really, it, it's so weird to watch the beginning of house of games and just see that. What am I looking at? Am I looking at a driveway? Oh no, I'm looking at a planter in front of a college. Okay. Or somewhere. Where am I? I don't know. Uh, and I just I think that he just does not know. He doesn't know quite how to begin a movie yet. I wonder too if that's an issue of uh, when you shoot movies, you you you'll sometimes have I, I think it's even got a word like leader. Like you'll you'll have yeah. the the early film that you can just shave off, and it gives you a little leeway for when to cut into or out of a scene. Uh, and I remember. Uh, once doing a student film back when I was, I was in school, and the guy who was shooting it uh, and editing it, the guy who was, who was making it, and I was just an actor in it, he later told me, he was like, oh my god, Tom, you were so annoying because every time I said action, you would immediately start talking, and I didn't have any leader <laughs> to play with there. <laughs> uh, so maybe that was going on there is Mamet didn't realize that he was supposed to cut out some of that leader of, of the planter or something. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Well, uh, Diggis, I'm glad you mentioned motion at the beginning of Sex, Lies, and Videotape because my second worst opening shot, uh, and I know I mentioned this on the podcast. I don't remember if we talked about it much. Um, but Road Warrior opens with the gyro. Actually, Road Warrior has a, a bit of a storytelling as well at the beginning, which I'll cut it a break because it's old stock footage of classic apocalyptic imagery, and it's got a gravelly-voiced narrator who, when you find out who it is at the end of the movie, that's kind of cool. But the opening shot of the movie proper is zooming down on a freeway going super fast, and I think it's probably shot from the actual gyrocopter they used in the movie. Uh, And it implies motion, uh, it implies recklessness, and it's a great entry into Road Warrior. However, Fury Road opens with us looking at the back of the V-8 Interceptor and Tom Hardy standing there just looking out over uh, sort of a a, a brown desert. And it gives the little gimmick with the two-headed lizard that pops up in the frame and then runs, skitters over, and Tom Hardy steps on it and eats it. But opening Fury Road, which I think is otherwise pretty much an immaculate movie, with a static image – uh, especially when the voiceover, by the way, during the static image is Tom Hardy, is, is Max talking about how he's pursued by phantoms, how he's haunted by these visions of people he has failed. Uh, and they'll chase him, too, throughout, like, throughout this opening sequence in the movie. Um, now, we have to establish, by the way, Max's character, even though the movie, I think anybody would agree, is about Furiosa, is about Charlize Theron's character. And the opening shot of her is the brand, the Immortan Joe brand on the back of her neck, where you know she's been a slave. Uh, And that's important, but the Max bit also establishes the significance of that brand. So I really like how Fury Road opens by introducing us to this character, who's ultimately ancillary to what's going on, but I just feel the opening shot doesn't say what it should about the character. Um, And it's a gorgeous shot, to be fair. I love the look of that V8 Interceptor, and we're about to lose it in a minute. We're not going to get to see much of it in the movie, but I love that we get to admire it. It's a great introduction to, like, this vast, barren landscape. Like, it looks cool. Um, But, uh, yeah, I just feel the opening shot of Fury Road is is misguided. Hmm. Kelly Wand, it now Uh, leaves a... Let me just say, though, you know, we... Uh, there's a theater around here we go to called the Arclight, and the people who work there all have badges that have uh, their name on it and their favorite movie. And the dude I bought the ticket for, A Monster Calls, uh, his favorite movie was Fury Road on his badge today. If I had bought that ticket from him, I would have gone, nice, like right in his face. <laughs> you would have gone, that opening sucks, though. Yeah, I would have been been explained to him. Ripped it off his chest. (laughs) And then everyone would have gone, boo, and then you would have gone, yeah, they're booing him. (laughs) Kelly Wan, you know me so well. See, I'm pulling a mirror to myself. Kelly Wan, I know you so well that I'm guessing that your number one opening shot is, in fact, a number one opening sequence. No, I did this one right. (laughs) All right, what do you got for us? Just to spice things up. That was my uh, theme, was doing one right. Uh, my number one, okay, do you remember how Snakes on a Plane opens? Good Lord, no. How? Wow. I remember it vividly because I thought, this is the worst opening to anything called Snakes on a Plane I can imagine. And it's like, it opens with the main dude who's a total douche. 
and I don't think we've seen him since, but he's like the main character in the movie. He's like just a young 20-something. He's uh, Jay Courtney, basically, in 2007. <laughs> and he's riding like a fucking scooter through a jungle on a road. And the music's all, going to be a relaxing day, going to be cool, tranquil vacation time. <laughs> and then somehow... There's a murder right after that, but like he witnesses it, and then Sam Jackson saves him or something. And there's a chase, but like the whole credits is just him and that shitty music for like the whole shot. And I really thought, I thought the same thing you did at the beginning of Fury Road. I'm like, wait, it's not going to open with snakes on a plane as the opening shot? Why? It, it, it really is funny watching uh, Snakes on a Plate should know better but it is funny watching early movies where I think a lot of times it's where the director knows okay we're going to have to have credits over this bit so yeah. I'm just going to shoot some filler and that's going to be here while it says you know the name of the actors and the director and it's sort of like they don't want to put in anything interesting until the words are out of the way uh, yeah. uh, but the music's terrible it's such a shitty theme to open Snakes on a Plane with it has nothing to do with snakes and there's that stupid video at the end that's actually about called Snakes on a Plane or something and they just put that at the end of the credits, which is another annoying thing. That's like putting the music video on the end of the end credits of the movie. It's the only time I've seen that done. Well, Caliwand, uh, if you'll step over here, we're going to have processing, and we've got a nice orange jumpsuit for you to wear for a while. Well, not for the number so, one, though. No, for the other ones. And also yeah. for the number one, because it sounds like you're actually talking – you did describe the opening scene of Snakes on a Plane and not the opening shot. And it is the worst one ever. It does sound pretty bad, though. I'll, if I'll you go, go back and watch it, you'll go, oh, my God, I see why I tuned this out. Will I then think I should let Kelly Wand out on good behavior? Uh, the number one should redeem me. All right. I'll have to check I'm it out. for redemption. All right. Alien well, in that case, I'm, I'm granting you a stay of imprisonment, and I'll be sure to check that scene out, and we'll see if it redeems you. I mean, I've suffered enough. <laughs> Dingus... What is the worst opening shot in all of movies that you presumably love? Um, I like this movie a lot more than you do, Tom. Uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh. Uh, this is the opening shot of the movie Melancholia. Man, I couldn't even tell you what that is. But, you know, Lars von Trier, I'm sure, gives a lot of thought. And I'm not being facetious. Gives a lot of thought to his opening shot. Oh, he sure does. I mean, this is this is very this is very important. This whole sequence is very important. Um because it's set against uh, uh, Wagner's Tristan and Zolt, um, which is, the, I mean, the prelude to that. So this opening sequence is a prelude, basically, to the movie. Uh, I appreciate it for what it is, but I don't know. I think it's, it's typically overindulgent. In in the way that Lars von Trier can be overindulgent, but I just hate the opening shot, the very opening shot, which is just Kristen Dun- um, I'm sorry, Kirsten Dunst's face, and it looks like she's just gotten out of the shower and she looks drowsy, and she's just it's just a shot of her face. It's just a weird shot of her face. I don't. It's it's totally off putting to me, uh, and I like a lot of what goes on in Melancholia. Um, and uh, on a side note, right, 
like moments after this opening shot, like like a couple of frames after this opening shot, dead birds are falling out of the sky next to her head. And I, I'm surprised nobody brought up that on the birds thing. Um, but it's just this awful picture of her with her eyes closed, looking like she's just gotten out of the shower. The whole the whole prelude feels over dramatic and weird to me. Uh, I think he's going for this operatic kind of thing, uh, and that's fine. But I hate that opening shot of Michael Melancholia. Uh, the, I the open. I don't remember the opening shot, but the prelude to Tristan and Isolde is uh, one of my favorite pieces of music, and it's an it's amazing gorgeous. piece of music. Yeah. And it's not particularly operatic, by the way. It's very. It doesn't. It, there's no bombast to it. it. It starts very slowly and it swells mm-hmm. very gradually and and in tiny increments. Um, at times almost imperceptible. And it's 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 all it's it's a musical caress. Um, the Tristan and Isolde prelude is is a fantastic piece of music. And I don't I don't think Wagner. I mean I don't pretend to know all of Wagner's stuff, but I don't think he's done anything near as good as just that one prelude. So what would bother me about that opening shot? If you're going to use that bit of music, you need to earn it by golly uh, so I'm really disappointed I think eventually maybe he does but I think he's just putting a bunch of images together that that for him it's it's more of um, uh, this is what's going to happen during the movie thematically in these images that I'm showing you uh, I, I just think they're interesting images to him that he's putting forth and he, I think he's relying too much on that piece of music which is immediately evocative i mean it's it's so gorgeous uh, but just that weird why is that your opening shot of her looking like she just got out of the shower i don't understand what he's doing i think it sounds like it was for kelly wand and drowsy <laughs> <laughs> but anytime i see melancholy i just think of tom the way i think I forget how you exactly say it, but it's when a planet. Oh, yeah, no, Mel- Melancholia is a movie about a planet hitting Kirsten Dunst in the face. Right, a planet hitting Kirsten Dunst in the face. It lives up to the title. It's a good movie. It lives up to the title. Well, the planet is called Melancholia, and that's the name of the planet that hits her in the face. And that's that's literally what happens. It's a spoiler, I guess. But, but once we get. She doesn't duck in time. <laughs> once we get past that whole thing, that whole. Like limo sequence where they're trying to get to the reception is so lovely. I mean, I really love that limo thing. There's this stretch limo thing with her and um, Alexander. Yeah, they're all Goose Skarsgård, right? Yeah, Skarsgård. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, with the with them in the back of the limo and then trying to drive the limo. It's just this windy road. It's a windy dirt road. It's really a great, you know, kind of weird cut sequence that works. I really, I really like the way that leads into the wedding. But Wait, that first is, shot drives me nuts. Is that Stellan Sarsgaard is in it too? Is it is his yeah. son also in it? Yeah, I think that's him. Oh, very cool. I'm almost certain that's him. I mean, you're probably right. I think it was before. Probably folks would have known who he was, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely. I mean, uh, you know, it's way before Battleship. But I, <laughs> or or what's the what's the television show he's so good in? Is that vampire thing? No, no, oh, that long that that Iraq television show that long. Oh, well, Generation Kill, right? Yeah, exactly. Generation Kill, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's where I really got to know him. But yeah, yeah, yeah that's him. That's him. Kelly, one, you probably know him from Vampire Diaries, though. Oh, uh, is that the rich man's true blood? 
Oh, shoot. That's what I meant to say. Dad gummit. Ha uh-huh. <laughs> ha. <laughs> so, the word diaries. I've outed myself by picking the wrong goofy vampire show. I think it's, maybe they show her face because it's like Freddy versus Jason. It's like a before the comet hits it. And then, I mean, <laughs> it's not a comet. <laughs> right. It's a comet the size of Texas. Kelly, well, <laughs> I'm so glad you don't work for NASA. Says NASA. <laughs> My favorite worst opening shot in all of movies, and good lord do I love this movie, Uh, and I've previously called this movie several times a perfect movie, but I might have to retract that considering, and I rewatched it, I'd I'd forgotten how dopey the opening shot is. (sighs) Kelly Wand, I'm going to ask you this. What's the opening shot of Jaws? Uh, It's the party on the beach? Nope. 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 I almost nope. picked this. I'm so glad you did this. Guess again. Is it just the ocean? It's a scuba diver slowly pushing a camera through a bunch of like underwater foliage that is supposedly, I guess, because the, the theme is playing, the John Williams theme, the significance of which means the shark is present. Shark's this heartbeat. Supposedly, yeah, this is supposedly the POV of the shark. And this shark kind of noses along the bottom of the water very slowly. It even opens with his, with his face down in the gravel. And then he looks, and it's just, it's just a scuba diver pushing a camera through a bunch of underwater crap. And it's clearly not a shark POV. It's slow. Uh, it, it's the, you know, the, the water. It, it's just ridiculous. It's like, what, what, why is it? And then it goes to the... He's not hungry yet. Is the music already starting up then? Yep. But it's yep. it's meant the music to be. Actually starts before the 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 picture comes in. By the way, yeah. the music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and we're supposed to be. You know, it's the music building and building and building as the sound as that theme does, while the camera is just kind of slowly, languidly being pushed through the water by the scuba diver. Um, and yeah, it's terrible. Then we go to the beach, and I'm okay with that. By the way, I'm okay with establishing, hey, here's a bunch of fun kids on a beach, and you know, we're because we're about to brutally kill one of them. That, that's they're cool. super fun, though. Especially well, that dude. He's fun. I mean, are you being facetious? Because he is—he's super endearing. Like he's a—he's a dork. Like making eyes at her, and she's looking back at him, and he's—he's he's obviously. Uh, he and falls he asleep looks- to her screams, taking off a shoe. So to that extent. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, whatever, babe. I'll be there. I don't think that's falling asleep, really. Yeah, it's a chemically induced sleep, Kelly Wand. Then on that day. <laughs> but maybe Jaws is on a chemically induced sleep, too, and that's why he's a little sluggish, because he hasn't gotten up yet. He's his just name isn't Jaws. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Dingus. He's dormant with his dorsal. All right. The listeners. Uh, uh, I'm, before you go to that, I'm really glad you picked that, because I... I considered that for a little bit, but then I thought you would uh, you would object because it kind of lays the bed for the music. But I think you're totally right. I think it's just it feels like it's from another movie. Well, I think it's a flash forward to after he gets blown up and it's one of his pieces floating down to the house. It's just a perspective from his, his blown yeah. out eyeball drifting yeah. down. Yeah. <laughs> it's like flash forward. It just really does nothing to lend to the idea of a stalking shark. It just right. it doesn't at all feel like that. It's yeah. But then the oh, word Jaws shows up. Uh, it's actually before that. I think the word Jaws shows up on a black screen, and then the picture fades in. I believe oh. you actually might even get the three actors' names before the picture fades in. Really? 
I think it goes Jaws on a black screen, Roy Scheider, uh, uh, um, Robert uh, Jaw, Richard Dreyfus, and then I think the picture fades in. I could be wrong. I'm going to bet you a dollar that <clears throat> you see the word Jaws while you're drifting around slowly, like it, and it's like a Jaws TN while he's swimming around. All right, because I'm going to make a dollar off this. Bear with me, real quick. Let me get the. All right. Actually, I actually looked at the beginning of Deep Blue Sea, thinking that it would be worse than the beginning of Jaws. It's just that weird music. No, it's not. What is is it? The opening of Deep Blue Sea, just some dudes that sort of like some people on a sailboat who are about to get killed. Right, but it's it's this beautiful like really high shot of the catamaran that they're on. Ah, and then it slowly goes down to them. It shows like this enormous sea with this catamaran and this enormous catamaran in the middle. And then we go down to the terrible actors who are partying on the catamaran. Catamaran has a lot of razzmatazz. All right, so Kelly, on here's the Universal logo. The Universal is now it's going from blurry into focus. It says Universal. Universal it's the Earth company. Water, right? Yep. See water, yep. water yep. theme, establishing yep. shot of the water. Here, okay, now it's a black screen, and I'm pretty sure you could like start to hear the uh, I don't know, is it cello or whatever? It's still a black screen. Stand by. We are 15 seconds into the DVD, and the screen is black. A Zanuck Brown production on mm. black, white text that that. that uh, that uh, those those fun- yeah yeah Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus. Here we go. Stand by. Still no picture up. I might owe you a dollar. Oh shoot a monkey! This is stupid. All right, let's go to the listener submissions. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Weimer says, in Dark City, it's not the visuals of the opening panning shot of the stars going down to the Gothic city, and finally Kiefer Sutherland's Doctor Schreiber. That's cool. That's great. That's lovely. It's the stupid voiceover we get from Kiefer Sutherland's character as we see these visuals, basically explaining the entire plot of the movie right off the bat. I think that new viewers to the movie should first let the few moments of that movie play without the sound. Better to piece it together than rather than having it spoon-fed from the get-go. Kelly Wanda, it sounds like you might have a cellmate. It's not an uh, opening shot. Opening sequence, yeah. In, I have when, a similar when I looked at Michael Clayton. I mean, when you have like an opening like dialogue going on, it's hard to... Yeah. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, just based on the the first four words, five words of this choice, uh, he, he might go in jail even longer than Kelly Wand. And those five words are: In When Harry Met Sally, Ugh. a movie I watch every New Year's, I am not thrilled with the opening <laughs> shot of an old married couple telling how they met. While it does reveal the entire movie is basically Harry and Sally's participation in this project, and the interstitial cutaways to other couples is kind of okay. To open the movie with this one and not well-composed or shot, feels like a misstep. I think the movie should have gone right to open at the, on the scene at the Northwestern University where the characters meet. Oh, Paul Weimer, so you're thinking it should open on a scene at Northwestern University. Yeah, Paul Weimer, we're not talking about scenes or sequences. We're talking about shots. Kelly Wan, scooch over, make room on the bunk. Kelly Wan, are you going to have the top bunk or the bottom bunk? It's like how you know with a good melon. <laughs> Kelly Wan just quoted Harry I'm so happy. Kelly Wan, that's another month on your sentence. It's the old lady. She's comparing his dick to a melon, old man's dick. Yeah, Paul Weimer, I'm not even going to read his number one, which is this bit in Alien 3 where the facehugger kills Hicks and the little girl. Because uh, he's describing the whole scene. Paul Weimer, I sentence you to be Kelly Wan's cellmate, and Kelly Wan gets to choose whether or not you get the top or bottom bunk. Uh, Josh, here's easy. 
Josh Lublinger says, this was super hard. I thought of one, though, so here it is. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Josh says. After the awesome, awesome Central-slash-South American jungle of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and before the Red Rock Southwestern Desert of Last Crusade, we got a neon-lit nightclub in Cape Capshaw in front of the credits. Yeet. I love that. <laughs> oh, I love that opening. It's so fucking weird. A huge musical number. At the beginning, well, not of, the opening. I mean, sorry, well, wait, is Josh Lowe, is, is he not describing the opening shot? No, it's on a gong. It's like the Paramount Mountains on a gong, and then someone hits the gong, and then it pulls out, and then the dance number starts with Kate Capshaw. But I think that's a great opening. I've always liked it. It's really weird. <laughs> the opening shot is the gong. Yeah. Josh Lubliner, you are going to jail. Three by three jail. I really probably should have explained this because that might be like a, a film nerd distinction. Um, but you know what? what? Ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law. I'm just saying mm-hmm. the distinction between shot and sequence or scene. Like I'm I just talking about took the opening screenshots because I thought just the opening shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something but that you can. It's, something, it's something that it, if you can't show it in a still, it doesn't count. Like if you can't take a screenshot and say, "Here's the opening shot," if you didn't have to explain, "Oh, the gong moves away and now Kate Capshaw's dancing around," that's not the opening shot. But your number one least favorite opening is the word Jaws coming up and you not remembering if that's how it opens. <laughs> well, no, it is, it is opening. You hate with that the, word. With the underwater picture, like just a scuba diver shooting a footage of, of like uh, underwater foliage. Uh, right. it, Good yeah. point, Kelly. But the word Jaws is on it. So, you uh, don't like- so I, think I could back up, but there's actually a, a shot before you see the image before the word Jaws comes up. And you and don't I, like that. Kelly Wand, uh, I did kind of describe, too, what's stupid about it is the motion. So, yeah. But it is, though, it's, even as an opening shot, it's stupid. I mean, it's obviously some dude sitting in the bottom of the ocean with a camera. Sharks don't lie on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, you know, it, it, it opens with they the camera the down at the bottom of the, at the this, like, gravel and, I don't know, seaweed or whatever. Well, like the gong, gong sharks do. Hmm. Grant Stewart says, Dark City is only famous for two things as far as I'm concerned. The first is selling their sets to be reused in The Matrix. The second was the release of a version of the film which shows the eponymous Dark City and its subterranean machinery floating in space. As far as I was concerned, Grant Stewart writes, this was a crucial reveal on my old VHS version. So when I bought the DVD to show to an old girlfriend, it felt like that first shot really, quote, this is what Grant Stewart wrote, shat in my kettle. Oh, wow. That's dark city. Arthur Jenkins Schultz says, I tried to limit this to movies I actually liked. Thank you, Arthur. Well done. And didn't count shots with credits still on the screen. Very good, Arthur. Men in Black. The opening shot of this movie is simply a fly splattering against the dirty windshield of a van carrying illegal immigrants. I think the bug is supposed to connect with the movie man's, with the movie's man, oh, with the movie's main antagonist, but I'm not sure. Either way, it's an ugly shot and a bad way to open an otherwise enjoyable movie. Life of Pi. While there's nothing wrong with the pretty setting of the movie's opening frames or the way they are filmed, the issue isn't that Rafe Spall – oh, God, I forgot he was in that. The issue isn't that Rafe Spall is contained within these frames. I feel bad for picking on him, but I hated Spall in this from the first time he's on screen, and I never warmed to him. Irfan Khan does save the framing device from Spall with a great performance, but I still wince a little bit each time Spall is on screen, including the opening, presumably shot. That is the correct uh, reaction to Rafe Spall. 
Is that the guy who was scared of Peter Parker and Spider-Man at the beginning? Man, I couldn't tell. No, isn't they, he the guy who didn't recognize the Dominion? No, Dingus, that's, uh, oh shoot, what is that guy? I love that guy's name. Who's the guy from Being Human, Kelly Wand? Robin Williams? <sighs> no, the, 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 uh, his name is something like Irfan Khan. Risa Fons. Risa Fons. Fons. No, Rape's Ball is definitely... Human uh, nature, Jesus. What did I say, being human? Yeah. At least I didn't make it plural. At least I didn't call it human natures. Being humanity. Uh, but no, yeah, Rape's Ball, Rape's Ball wishes he was uh, Risa Fons. Yeah, okay. Fons wish. Uh, Arthur, get, yeah. okay, uh, Arthur Ginvalala Jelly's number one pick, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Ah, uh, so... I've never seen any shots of that. <laughs> Dingus, you've seen all the shots of that. Uh, Arthur says, I like this movie more than most people I know, but even I cannot defend its opening shot. It starts with an extreme close-up of Kate Blanchett, who is caked in old-person makeup and CG, while doing a barely intelligible mumbling vocal delivery with a heavy accent. Kate Blanchett. Does... What did I say? I was just saying Kate Blanchett. Oh, very good, Kelly Wine. Yep. Uh, this frame device is so odd, even though it does eventually provide a nice moment or two, and the opening shot's the worst part of it, providing a major obstacle for many viewers, which is a shame. Uh, yeah, I don't remember her mate. I just remember everybody, all the old creepy CG stuff looking goofy. Yeah. The frosting on the cake bland shot. <laughs> oh, guys. Dan Winningham says, only one this week. Uh, in Resident Evil Retribution, all right, quick quiz. Wow. Who can tell me which one is, because I couldn't do this, which one is Resident Evil Retribution? That's Mila Jovovich. <laughs> Kelly Wanting. That's her character's <laughs> name. Uh, yeah, I don't, is that the Las Vegas one, maybe? Where uh, Early's Gold's the one with Rosemary Clooney. <laughs> the movie starts... Uh, Dan says, right where the previous film left off. Actually, I love these bits, uh, although where, where the previous movies end with a cliffhanger, and then the next movie just feels obligated to, well, we got to make something of this, so we'll do a little scene with this. Then on that uh, Dan says, the movie starts right where the previous film left off. A freighter on the coast of L.A. with a horde of umbrella shoppers bearing down on Mila Jovovich and the rest of the survivors. Mm. Umbrella shoppers? What? Yeah. However, as the credits roll, the battle is shown filmed in reverse. As Mila flips back up into the boat, explosions shrink back down into the missiles that retreat back into the helicopters, etc. Sounds like a scene. Then Villa does, Mila does a voiceover, catching everyone up on the plot of all the previous films, as clips from said films show. Like, a, Yeah, Dan, you're describing the opening scene, the whole opening sequence of... God! Distribution. I'm so embarrassed for you. Just follow the yellow line, and you'll be processed uh, down there and given your jumpsuit and shown to your cell. Uh, at any rate, <laughs> it's going to be crowded in there, Kelly Wand. Uh, Dan says, all that nonsense served little purpose, uh, unless they needed to pad out the film to 90 minutes. When is there another one coming? There's another Resident Evil impending, right? It's January. These should come out in January, right? It's called Resident Evil colon Underworld. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'm picking up. I thought there was another one. Dude, they're so different. Nick D, number three, Flight, 
The movie opens when Denzel Washington in bed the morning after with a sexy naked girl next to him. That's mm. no yeah. Uh, sheets strewn everywhere. The movie then goes on to be about how addicts are tedious. <laughs> if the movie <laughs> if the movie's trying to set the stage for how awful the life of an addict is, it fails. <laughs> Doesn't he fly better junk? That to me is the more interesting scientific fact. Well, that's the thing is he he makes the plane do things that those planes could never do because he's had a couple of vodkas. They should do a sequel where he gets drunker and like pilots a rocket. The drunker he gets, the farther he goes. What would this be called, Kelly Wand? What? This oh, uh, space flight. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> like that. Uh, Nick D's other choice for uh, opening shots, which sounds like they might be scenes. Let's find out. Lost in translation. Oh, well, here we go. Oh, Wait a oh minute. my God. No. All, yeah. First of all, no. Second no, of no, all. No, 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 because no. Yeah. Nick D, what's the matter with you? Here, That's here's the best what, opening shot. I know. Yeah, what the hell are you thinking? All right, here's what Nick D is thinking, which makes even less sense. When yeah, Nick D says, as much as I enjoy looking at Scarlett Johansson's ass, what does it have, what does it have to do with what happens in the movie? Uh, yeah, I mean, the whole point of... You lost me at the first part. <laughs> I mean, she's such a young, beautiful, voluptuous woman, and... Lost me at the oh, last part. Yeah, opening on her butt is kind of establishing that Every fact. movie should open with that. Yeah, Oh. Nick D, what's the matter with that? But anyway, that's that's a troll. He's trolling us. Well, let's find out because be. that's a, a brilliant, no, that's what, a brilliant opening shot. It really is, yeah, yeah. In many ways, it's a full moon. And it's not simply lascivious. It's it's. <laughs> well, I can't very well say something isn't simply lascivious as Kelly Wand makes a crack about it being a full yeah. moon. Good luck. For undermining that. Kelly Wand. I was trying to point out that it was Sofia Coppola, and this is a woman making this movie. All right. It's not her ass. <laughs> Nick D's number one pick. Dingus, I suspect this might be for you. The Princess Bride. What? Let, me, let me ask you this, Nick D writes. In a movie which strikes such a precarious tone between comedy, romance, and fantasy, with such memorable characters and dialogue, how important is it that on his sick day home from school... We know what video game Fred Savage is playing. <laughs> so it opens on Fred Savage's video game? Yeah, 8 bit pixel thing. I kind of like that, though. I like that. Well, isn't it also saying that this is that what we're about to see is a divergence from what he would normally do? That this storytelling bit is distinct from, hey, kids just sitting around playing video games. And video games, I think it's saying, are like lamer. Like, you're about to see something that's going to make this look like total garbage. So it's more misdirection, is what I took when I saw it. Because I'd read Nick, the book before I saw the movie. Yeah, Nick D, you opened strong with the flight pick, but uh, you're, we can't agree with you on your Lost in Translation and Princess Bride ones. But to your credit, Nick D, you did better than most of the people because you actually picked opening shots rather than scenes or sequences. So Thank you. Thank well you. done. So uh, all right. Uh, no, Kelly Wan, you're still in jail. Uh, runners up, especially Kelly Wan since I think – no, yeah, yeah, Kelly Wan, just, just languish there for a while. All right. I like it. <laughs> uh, runners up for lunch. Bad opening shots. Uh, I would pick uh, the Peter Jackson King Kong um, because it's an opening shot of a monkey in a zoo, which seems to me to be a little on the nose. Mm. Uh, it's just like a little monkey in a zoo 
and then another like like uh, crawling over the monkey and picking at its ear, and then a weird CG shot of like elephants in the same zoo, and then we go into like a bunch of humans in a shanty town. So I just think that monkey in a zoo is a little too much for the opening of King Kong. But I was kind of primed to look at King Kong this week. Do you guys remember the opening of 28 Days Later? I kind of wanted to look at that, but it seems to me just to be in the lab, isn't it? So the opening shot is actually footage of, like, riots. I mean, it's a sequence of footage of of riots and violence around the world. And then it pulls back, and you realize you're watching a monitor. And then you realize there are several monitors, and then the camera pans to the monkey strapped to the table being forced to watch all of this. Oh, right. But, yeah, as far as opening with monkeys, which I never think is a good idea. (laughs) Um, My other runner-up was – which I actually came around on. It was, what was difficult was uh, I gave each of these opening shots a chance. Um, so for the opening shot of the movie Made is oh. just a shot of the American flag. Do you remember? Ew, Ew no. Why would that – what's he doing? What is that? In America. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it's maybe, maybe Kelly's right. Maybe it's a pun. Well, it is, but but it looks like that. It's just like a shot that of the American flag. flag too. And it turns out it's during a boxing match between John Favreau and oh. in this casino, and there's other flags, but it pulls back, and they're beating the hell out of each other. And, you know, the flag's in the background of this boxing match, and you realize it is kind of what Kelly wants talking about. It, it is kind of a made in America kind of a, a vibe as far as, you know, his, him as a fighter or a boxer, or trying to be that. Uh, but that first shot, I was like, oh, no, this is terrible. And then, unfortunately, with a lot of these, because I tried to go with movies I liked, I ended up watching, you know, 15, 20, however many minutes of it, and it kind of actually works. So it, it's it's a crappy runner-up, but it was, it, was, it was not the opening shot I expected. Let me just say that. I was not expecting to see, like, a patent like huge American flag at the beginning of the movie made. Uh, Dingus, uh, Unchpe Ube. <laughs> Where did you hear that, Tom? Unchpe, uh, <laughs> uh, your ace fay, asshole A. Was that Saddam Hussein's third son? <laughs> Ooh, nicely done. Gotcha, uh, racist. Uh, all right, so uh, some quick bookkeeping. Uh, next week, well, by we, I mean uh, Dingus and Kelly. Uh, I have to sit out next week for uh, voice rest for a procedure I'm getting done, so you guys are going to have to cover for me for XXX, The Return of Xander Cage. <sighs> Come on, Kelly Wand. He I'm saying it in German. So. Even better. Yeah, like Vin Diesel. Yeah, he's, he looks like he'd be terrifying speaking German. That's uh, the choice to make in V. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so listeners see that and uh, if you have any comments on it send them to 3x3 at quarter to 3 I'm sure Dingus and Kelly would love to include those comments in the podcast uh, because 3x3 three three is 3x3 three three and not 2x3 three, that makes no sense the 3x3 three three that Kelly Wan is about to announce will actually occur in two weeks so you have lots of extra time to send in your submissions Kelly Wan, tell us now what will that 3x3 three Two weeks from now, what will it be? It was inspired by this week's movie and next week's 
And the week after that three by three topic is three best deathbeds in movies. There's a reason I picked it too. So uh, no, I'm thinking now. Like uh, okay, huh, Dingus? Do you have any questions? You need any elaboration here? I'm pretty good with this. Uh, three best deathbeds. Okay. Yeah. Pretty exciting. So can I? Do you mean deathbeds or deathbed sequences? However you choose to interpret it, man. What? <laughs> So it, it could be like your opening sequence of Jaws because basically the bottom of the ocean is a deathbed. Yeah. Davy Jones Locker, yeah. Yep. Uh, there might actually be a movie called – I know there's a movie about this. There's a movie about a killer – Shut up! Shut up! <laughs> oh! Am I really, Kelly Wand? Maybe. Okay. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up! <laughs> in that case, Tom, you just got you just got shut down by Kelly Wand. Well, I should have known of all the people that I didn't need to tell this to. Kelly Wand would be one of them. So, okay, Kelly Wand, interesting. I thought I was the only one who would know about that. You never cease to surprise me, Kelly Wand. Uh, all right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, ah, I like you. <laughs> so, Kelly Wand. Uh, so the listeners can participate, and they can also tune in to find out what we're talking about. What if they have some choices for their favorite deathbeds? How would they include those in the podcast? If three deathbeds for movies come to mind instantly, send or, your picks. Or fewer. It can be fewer than three. And by instantly, I mean over the next two weeks. Send their choices. Oh, and there's no deathbeds in anime, by the way. I, looked at, <laughs> I, I did some research over the weekend, and they don't exist because the Japanese don't believe in the concept of deathbeds. <laughs> Um, so send your white people's deathbeds to 3x3 at quarter to three dot com, and I will misread them on the air in quotes because the internet's air. Also, just to give everyone some advance warning, uh, I think we're going to go ahead and do this yearly. I hope it doesn't wear out its welcome, but we actually really enjoy this. Uh, so it, 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 it's hugely helpful when you guys support us, but we, we love the process of you guys picking movies to force us to do a podcast on them. Um, now, unfortunately, we're also using it to, to basically ask for donations, but just to let you know, we will be, I think, doing this annually. So coming up in February, and we'll explain more in the coming weeks about this, we are going to schedule uh, the opportunity for you guys to submit your choices along with small donations for a movie you'd like us to do a podcast on. And just so you know where you would fit, the first winner of this several years back was Why Did I Get Married To, a Tyler Perry movie. And last year's winner was The Goonies. So any movie you want us to see you do a podcast on, you can then be third in that series. We'll be introducing that. We'll be talking about that uh, in the coming weeks, and it'll happen sometime in February. So just, just to warn you guys. So uh, join Dingus and Kelly Wan next week for the return of Xander Gage. I'll be back in two weeks. Cage. Oh, Gage, right, Cage, right. How can I screw that up? (laughs) I am Pet Cemetery movie. I am Tom Chick. I have been here with Christian Merlinski. It's Christian Murawski. And Kelly Wand. I prefer Wagner's earlier funnier ones. I just call I love you I just called To say how much I care I just called To say I love you I just called
Dingus, when I was at La La Land, I thought I saw Kevin Costner in the lobby before the movie, and I went up to him because I was going to tell him how much I admired his work in Waterworld, and suddenly I realized I was super embarrassed. It was actually Gene Triplehorn. So I just went, and then I walked away. I swore an oath to keep it secret. This lie has kept Apocalypse at bay for hundreds of years. We were afraid if the Queen's heart was destroyed, you'd lose your immortality or die. That wasn't your choice to make! This is Andrew Cage! As destruction goes, that was pretty pitiful. Oh. Is that Sigourney in Deal of the Century? <laughs> yeah, she is.